You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. All Earth Council, in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The Biochemical Forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era. Are we happy? Are we happy and effective? Consultation with leading experts in the field makes it perfectly clear, perfectly clear, that we are all now programmed for perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness. occasional technical or electronic errors in programming and or surveillance which produce perverse exceptions. I'm going to have a child. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages, then they begin touching, then indulging in various sexual acts and the ultimate perversion, love. For such extreme psychobiological misfunction, only isolation will do. to the contrary, it should be made perfectly clear, perfectly clear, perfectly clear. There have been no, repeat, no unprogrammed departures, no pursuits. people will attack any persons venturing beyond prescribed areas. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jay Bowman. Hey, I'm just here to goof on George Lucas. Excellent. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. I think I'm here to do the same. This week we're looking at THX 1138, the first feature film from director George Lucas. This 1971 dystopian sci-fi flick features a world in which love is outlawed and mind-altering drugs are mandatory. The film stars Robert Duvall as the titular THX 1138 and Maggie McComey as LUH 3417. They are roommates who eventually develop into something much more despite the totalitarian regime in which they live. Now we're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, so if you've not seen THX 1138, please turn off the podcast. Come on back after you've tracked down the original version and the revised director's cut, both of which we'll be discussing on this episode. 
Now, Chris, when was the first time you saw THX 1138 and what did you think? The first time I saw it, I was probably, I was thinking, I was trying to nail this down earlier today, between, between 12 and 14 years old, I think. I had um, watched Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all that stuff. And I wanted to see what else the people had done. This wasn't a mistake, but the one where I read that David Prowse was in a film with no makeup was a mistake when I was like 13 years old. You know, Clockwork Orange. I was not ready for that. But this, when I first saw it, even though it was the middle of the 80s and it was, you know, very relevant at the time, I didn't see anything deeper in it. It it seemed it was very oppressive and not at all like what he had what I had seen him produce before. How about you, Jay? I didn't see it for a really long time. I grew up with Star Wars, of course, and I was aware of George Lucas's earlier movies, but it wasn't at any of the video stores I went to growing up, so there was no way to to see it. So I didn't check it out until the uh, the director's cut DVD came out in two thousand four, and of course two thousand four was was right in the thick of the. Uh, the kind of parade of schlock that was the Star Wars prequels. And uh, I, I think the director's came director's cut came out kind of shortly after Attack of the Clones. So my appreciation for George Lucas was was at an all-time low uh, when I finally got around to to checking it out. And I'm, I'm not a big science fiction guy. I like the Star Wars movies, but those are, of course, more sort of fantasy and adventure. But there's a specific kind of subgenre that I've always responded really strongly to. And that's kind of a stark minimalist sci-fi stories about people trying to escape a, a dystopian society, like things like Logan's run. So when I finally saw THX, it was like, Oh, this is the, the purest example of that idea of that story. Uh, so I, I loved it when I finally got around to seeing it. it. It's, it's sloppy and it has some problems, but I just I loved the design of the worlds and the 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 effective use of the practical locations to make it look like this kind of barren underground civilization. And uh, it just had this sort of uh, rebellious nature to it, both in terms of the story and the style of film filmmaking, which uh, was sort of a balance between uh, the abstract and, and sort of a narrative driven story, which is my favorite types of movies. I probably saw this somewhere around the same time that you saw it, Chris. Um, I saw it on, uh, the local, uh, UHF channel, WKBD, and it was touted, oh yeah, George Lucas's first film. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I have to check this out. And I was way too young to appreciate what this movie was about. I just remember like, okay, yeah, why are all these people bald? I had a real hard time even telling the characters apart and, I remembered the first act very well, but then after it, it just kind of faded out of my memory. So I was really glad to come back and revisit this film. I've revisited it over the years. Uh, this seems to be, for some reason, we're covering a lot of dystopian films on the podcast this year. So it was uh, really nice to come back to this one to see just how dense this movie is. And it is so nice to think that this was his first feature film. And then it's almost kind of like the middle of his filmography, though, because he did a lot of short experimental movies. This one, American Graffiti, 
and then Star Wars, and then didn't direct anything again for years and years again until that dark spot that you were talking about, Jay. When Lucas said to people, you know, that he wants to retire and go make experimental movies, a lot of people just laughed it off. But it's like, no, no, he was an experimental filmmaker. And this kind of is that blend of experimental filmmaking and narrative film. And it's just the loosest of narrative. And I love that you kind of have to just stick with the film and let it wash over you in order to even try to follow along with what's going on. Yeah, on the on the surface as a teen, it was definitely a okay, it's it's time to rebel against the established overlord or whatever you want to call it at the time, which fed into my listening to punk and being a skateboarder and all that stuff. But watching it now, it it, it definitely takes on some different meanings like being stuck at your job and sacrificing for many different reasons, mostly, mostly for your work pretty much. Yeah. It definitely feels like George Lucas's most personal movie, which mm. is a shame that it came right at the beginning of his filmography. And it's so different than everything else he ever did. I mean, it's thematically, there's some similarities, there's a kind of uh, yearning for escape that kind of goes into star Wars and American graffiti, but just on a, a technical level and a filmmaking level, it, it feels like it's made by a different person. I mean, it has such a strong sense of uh, the technical aspects, specifically the uh, the shot composition, which is one of the strongest aspects of the movie. And that's there's nothing else that he did after that really kind of has that same uh, sort of impact. We read about the origins of the film and that he wanted to shoot it in Japan. And when you look at it, it has so many compositions that to me are right out of a Kurosawa film, uh, especially some of the reflections that they're doing, some of the, uh, the, those compositions where they're really using the frame in a very nice way, especially not to, to jump ahead too much, but the, uh, the jail scene and where the bodies are placed. His use of foreground, background, midground is really nice. Yeah. This is probably one of the most artistic looking films. I mean, he would, you know, obviously Haskell Wexler shot graffiti and it looks fantastic. But for me, that's got that real documentary feel to it, which I love. And this one, though, is very, very formal in its uh, application and its mise-en-scene. And then I think really so much of this movie lives by that soundtrack and the way that they have layered all the sounds, the music, everything. And this really feels like a great collaboration between Lucas and Merch, who not only did they write the film together, but then ended up kind of like passing the editing baton back and forth one to, you know editing from i think it was like 12 to 6 and the other one from 6 to 12 or something like that so they're just constantly going back and forth and like feeding off each other like let's look at what george did okay now i'm going to do my sequence oh what did walter do okay now i'm going to do mine and just bouncing back and forth and creating this thing kind of together in that way yeah well as we learn with his later career he definitely works best when he's collaborating left to his own devices and it's usually a disaster the collaboration between him and spielberg and kasdan i mean kasdan to me was kind of the the hero behind the scenes to take all of these ideas that they're throwing out and then forming them into something as coherent and as wonderful as, as raiders of the lost ark but then it's like 
Lucas at that point had all of these great ideas and it was almost like, you know, Spielberg had to rein him in a couple of times because it was just like, no, 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 you're going off the deep end. Let's, let's keep it on here because Lucas was an idea machine at that point. Oh yeah. I, and I definitely feel like uh THX is it, its limitations are its advantage. Like, cause he has all these ideas and the movie is so simple and stark because it was so, you know, low budget. It might be the only good movie that George Lucas could possibly make. Like a lot of what would be his weaknesses later in his career, I think, are strengths with that movie, specifically to the, uh, you know, the cold, detached acting, which I would attribute to the prequels as well as THX. But it, of course, works in favor of THX. I don't like sand. It's coarse, rough and irritating and it gets everywhere. Well, yeah, and that's one of the things, too, that I read that uh, the cast and crew were not necessarily happy with him because he just wouldn't communicate with people. And it's like the most uncommunicative <laughs> director that's around. We'll hear a little bit later on from uh, Bruce Chessie, who was begging. He and his his brother and father worked on this. They were in the trial scene, and they're, like, begging for rehearsals. And then it basically became, okay, we're going to shoot it now. And it's like, wait, we didn't rehearse. We don't know anything that's going on. It's like... You know, who cares about that stuff? Let's do it now. We'll do it live! Fuck it! Yeah, there are so many great themes in this, and so many of them come right off the bat. I mean, there's the idea of the drugs that are... I don't want to say they're fueling society because they're, they're oppressing society. And we get so much of that at the beginning where we have, I mean, even one of the first shots of the film is from inside of a medicine cabinet and we hear this voice going, what's wrong? Only to realize later that every time you open a medicine cabinet, you're going to get prompted by that voice, that same voice, which can kind of travel through the city. I love that Luz's uh, job is sitting and monitoring stuff and kind of playing these sound clips to different people trying to find almost, it's almost like uh, Fred Norris on the Howard Stern show, trying to find the appropriate sound clips to play for these different situations of all the people in the city. If you feel you are not properly sedated, call 348-844 immediately. Failure to do so may result in prosecution for criminal drug evasion. For more enjoyment and greater efficiency, consumption is being standardized. Baba Bowie. The calming voice of Ohm, which is their god figure. I mean, again, Jay, to your point, there are so many ideas in here, and you could almost split this off into several different sci-fi films and say, okay, let's talk about a society that's oppressed by drugs. Let's talk about the society that's oppressed by religion, and and here's one uh, about consumerism, but he just kind of puts them all together. He's just a flurry of ideas at this point. Yeah, definitely early on, the first act feels like – I think it's there's elements of it that feel very film school-y, uh, specifically the the – sort of allegorical elements about consumerism and and uh religion which seem really at odds on a, a like a realistic level of what this world is specifically the the religious angle which is these are all sedated drones essentially uh so why would they even whoever is in charge which is something i like is that we never really see who is running the show in this it seems to almost to be automated but why in this world where people essentially don't have any individuality, why would they even introduce this concept of religion to them? And then just having the uh, the confessional boost with the image of, of Jesus's face is, is a little uh, 
a little on the nose and kind of silly. Watching it to do this episode, not obviously any of the past times that I've seen it. Ohm, the the god that they confess to or do their real world Dallas confession <laughs> to. Um, in Phantom Menace, the droid that's in control of the invading army on Naboo is is Ohm Nine. I like that he reuses stuff, but at the same time, when I was like 13 years old, the voiceovers that you get throughout their society, it's the Death Star announcer. It may not be the exact guy, but a lot of the electrical distortion that they put on it, um, the tone, the echo, it all had the opposite effect on me that it should have. It felt familiar and a little comfortable because, hey, I know that sound. Right. Yeah, the voices that are telling THX, especially like back off of that THX, it is totally... Right, then just back off THX 1138. Back off for a second. Copy, base one. Look, take red two and three. Hold up here and wait for my signals. Gold leader kind of voice in yeah. that effect. Because, I mean, that effect that Merch would use in this would come back in the conversation. It would come back in uh, Apocalypse Now. And it was definitely there in Star Wars. There were so many times where you're just like, oh, I know that type of, of effect. And I'm surprised some of the sound effects didn't even come back. Like, because they've got some great siren noises in this that I'm surprised didn't find their way into Star Wars later on. Yeah, rewatching this, I couldn't tell because it was the director's cut that I watched last. I couldn't remember the original sound effects, but I definitely heard some like speeder bike noises and and other stuff that may have been added in afterwards. Well, there definitely is uh, the uh, when THX is surrounded by the three robot cops. They all have those long black uh, poles, mm. and the, it's a very – it almost sounds like the lightsaber. It's pretty close. On to the sixth night. Well, that's enough. It's like the, the precursor to the lightsaber. I didn't realize when I was a kid that the cops are robots. And now I know that we see a scene of THX making one of these cops, but for some reason it just never struck me. I always thought that these were guys wearing masks. And I think part of that is because the cops, and I think that this is on purpose, the cops almost seem more... More human than human is our motto. They seem more realistic, the way that they move, the way that, uh, you know, even the one cop who's giving like his stick or his taser or whatever to one of the kids. He's just like, okay, just this once. I mean, these robots sound more human than the humans do. Just the way that they speak, the way that, you know, even when the one cop is walking the, I guess it's a little kid back to the, the, his dwelling. It's just like the way that this guy moves is a lot more limber and loose and laid back than any of these uh, shaved head denizens of this underground world. So it just took me so long to finally realize, oh, these are, these are robots. Okay. Um, and, but yet they're more real than the humans are. Yeah. And I like that, that irony that, uh, yeah, THX and all the other workers are essentially building the, uh, the beings that are controlling them. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure the, uh, the voices of all the robots are the same voice as 
the uh oh i think it's the same voice which is is interesting there's some moments where you can hear that it's the exact same voice especially when two of them are speaking to one another and they'll just have one is more speeded up than the other one which makes almost for some comical things i hope that accelerator load holds i'm almost through to the upper positive plates and they say in the script several times like that the police will speak with ohm's voice i don't necessarily hear that too much in the final product i just be i guess because ohm is so laid back when he speaks at whole my time is yours could you be more specific the cops definitely speak a little bit faster than that i actually appreciate the subtlety that that they seem to be um satirizing religion in this way man is creating their God, the one that watches over them and enforces the rules and punishes them when they're bad, much like their God's creating gods, which is kind of strange when you when you think about it. And I love how much God or Ohm in this case, how he is very focused on consumerism. And it is this whole thing of like, you know, let us be thankful we have an occupation to fill. Work hard. Increase production, prevent accidents, and be happy. Blessed be the worker kind of thing. And then when we see Duval go out and buy literally a widget <laughs> from a store and then go home and put the widget in this thing, which basically just disintegrates it. And that's it. So that's all they do. They work so that they can buy widgets to have them destroyed and that makes them a good citizen to your point jay it's a little on the nose when it comes to that but i like that they're not setting up bouncy danny elfman music to for him to like here i go to the store now i'm buying this now i come home and i throw it in the trash that there's a little bit more to that in the interim I don't think the movie even really needed that at all. The consumerism angle, I, like it's so the rest of the movie is so sort of stark and straightforward that both the consumerism stuff and the religious stuff almost feel out of place. Because if you look at it, I mean, I get that he's trying to make a comment on these things, but if you look at it in the uh, the kind of reality of the world, they both feel like if you have these these people that are just sort of these worker drones that they go, they do their job, they go home. Like, why introduce those aspects unless you're a film student that wants to make some sort of pretentious comment on consumerism, that that's how it comes across. Speaking of that, I was going through the commentary um, where Lucas was talking about all the stuff that he wanted to put in here. And it, this definitely comes from a differently minded citizen of the sixties because he talks about how it's, it's anti-consumerism and a society that um, wants everything to be perfect, but realizes nobody realizes that it can't actually be without problems. And the 2017 version of me is listening to this, realizing what he's done in, in the real world, revolutionized movie making, merchandising, going in and, and making changes to try to make a film perfect. And for the most part, missing the mark. He's definitely a different person now than when he made this. And it almost feels like he didn't quite understand the world that was out there. 
He still doesn't. <laughs> that's the uh, <laughs> that's the conundrum. That's the conundrum that is George Lucas. Yeah. One of the things that I like too with this original version, because we'll talk about this later on with the revised version, but one of the things I like the most about George Lucas and his science fiction is that used universe look that he's doing. You know, um, I talked to, uh, Roger Christian about, um, how he helped make the, uh, Millennium Falcon look used and his methods for making, you know, Moss Eisley look the way that it looked when, uh, you know, Luke and, and Obi-Wan go into it. And the way that this world looks is absolutely fantastic. And it looks like this has been going on for a long time. Like they never talk about, oh, there was a revolution and we set up this government or we did this or we did that. It just seems like this is the way that it's been for a long time. And you can see that things are starting to break down. And that's one of the things I like the most about this movie is that things are not running very well, that there are, well, uh, there there are literal bugs in the system or the albino uh, lizard in one of the versions of it uh, that we have uh, the people that are going into the one elevator and they're like, oh, no, we've changed. Uh, this elevator's out of service now. Or the guy who's trying to buy one of these widgets and, and his card won't work. And they're like, oh, to make it easier for you, we're standardizing consumption. Or the robot who's running into the wall repeatedly. So this... This system is not by any means perfect. It really kind of sucks. And that's one of the things I appreciate about it in that this whole thing of eventually they find out that law has been replacing THX's drugs with, you know, placebos or much less potent drugs. So he's coming out of his drug induced stupor that he's got and they're going to arrest him for criminal drug evasion and they're arresting him or they're putting him in what they call a mind lock right at the moment when he's dealing with this uh radioactive material that he's going to drop into one of these cop uh robots and you've got different factions all yelling at each other like who ordered this mind lock this is so stupid you know this guy is about to, <laughs> to blow up the entire facility and the other people are just like you know we have to have this happen and just the bureaucracy is just out of control and it seems like you know again to the earlier point these are the people that are really in charge are the bureaucrats more than the robots and but yet the bureaucrats are the ones who are kind of churning out the robots have all the worker bees to make these robots but it seems like the bureaucrats are in just as much shit as everybody else so it doesn't seem to be a high man on a totem pole any place yeah there are certain points when i watch this when i think that any overseer or governing body died a long time ago and they're just they just continue to do it because they're in a stupor and they're basically just meat zombies walking around and that's all they know. So that's all they continue to do. And they're going to do it until it crumbles around them. It seems feels like nobody's really in charge. Like the, there's this automated system that's starting to fail and there's nobody kind of above them. And I like the idea that the uh the cop robots, which are supposed to be the symbols of authority, really don't have any power. I mean, there's that scene later on when Sid Haig just knocks one over and crushes its head. 
Like nobody is really it's this illusion of authority, but it's not really there. But these people are all sort of so sedated and they're so used to the system that nobody's questioning it, which I would imagine would have been the original reason to drug them just to stop everybody from asking questions. And then it just kept going. That's what we do. Talking about consumerism again, one of the methods of control for the society, too, is the television or the hollow vision in this case. There are so many uh, amazing programs, including uh, Dancing Naked Black Woman and Dancing <laughs> Naked Black Man. But my favorite is the minstrel show that they have, where it's the two black guys, bad jokes, but you have the laugh track going, and how the guy was assigned a car and he ran it into a crowd. I was just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. My favorite show is the police brutality show. It's just the robot cop just, just beating a guy repeatedly. I swear in the novelization that we see THX doing a little bit of self-pleasuring while he's watching television. And I swear that in the book, he flips from the naked dancing woman to the police brutality show. And that's what gets him off. So I was just like, whoa, talk about a (laughs) weird edit, right? Yeah. (laughs) It is kind of alluded to in in the movie, though not like blatant. It's very uncomfortable, and it reminds me a lot of the holiday special. So, oh, God, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, so that's just uncomfortable, you know, for, you know, 10-year-old me. I exist for you. I am in your mind as you create me. Oh, yes. I can feel my creation. <laughs> Grandpa Wookiee uh, is in the, the VR masturbation <laughs> machine. And yes, this, and it's the THX <laughs> visor. <laughs> yep. Well, the, the 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 masturbation machine in the in THX that was added for the uh, director's cut, right? Isn't that a CG invention? So you yeah. could say George Lucas invented the flashlight. I mean, that's essentially what it is. I just wonder who's in charge of cleaning that thing up in the, in this automated world. Like someone has to have that job. Give it to Sid Haig. You mentioned Logan's Run earlier. THX eleven thirty eight. It's right there in that sweet spot of so many great science fiction books, stories, TV shows, and, and movies. I can't say that, you know, oh, it predates all this stuff. It predates everything. You know, oh, this was Logan's Run before it was Logan's Run, you know, and start casting aspersions like it was a ripoff or whatever. Because these are ideas that have been around for uh, over a century here as far as dystopian novels, dystopian stories. I mean, you can see so many things. I imagine a great double feature would be THX 1138 and Logan's Run. I mean, and just to see the different sensibility that one director had versus another, because there's so many similarities like the use of the mall as the underground structure the whole idea of you know trying to get out of the underground and come above ground and seeing what it is and and uh if it's okay to go above ground anymore just this whole idea of uh, of um pursuing the, the like because logan is bought into the company story and it takes uh, a woman to kind of break him out of that it takes jenny to break him out of that and in this it's law that has to break him out of it and you also have the predator like francis the sandman in um logan's run and then in this one you have sin but again a very different relationship and really for the first full act of this movie it really plays very strongly especially this kind of almost like a love triangle between sen 
who's played by Donald Pleasance and Law and THX. But it's interesting too, and George Lucas swears up and down that he didn't intend for this. But for me, like at first you think that Sen is going for Law and wants to take Law away from THX. But if anything, it seems like Sen is trying to move her out of the picture so he and THX can be together. Yeah, you know, that's something I, I picked up on in this most re- in rewatching it you know, for the podcast that I never really noticed before was, yeah, Donald Pleasant's intentions. And I'm still trying to figure out, like, I need to watch those scenes of their conversation back to back because I know that their whole conversation was kind of recut from one version to the other. So I watched the director's cut last and I was just like, I don't remember this particular line in here. And so it's weird how he tried to reframe things. And I'm wondering if he tried to reframe things to make us think less about this kind of uh, homoerotic overtones to the conversation, especially, I mean, the one thing that always gets me is when Sen tells THX, you're rated very high in sanitation. I don't know what it is about that, but I, I'm, I keep thinking of Jerry Seinfeld. Because I'm single, I'm thin, and I'm neat. Or Felix Unger, I guess. One of the things that I've said when talking about George Lucas before is that he will never let go of an idea, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Hey, let's have a planet where there's it's all volcanoes. It could be a good idea, but it's just so poorly executed in the prequels <laughs> that it's just like, uh, forget it, George, just let it go. Or, oh, well, hey, we'll have this uh, scene at a nightclub and it'll be in Singapore and yada. And it's just like, no, no, enough, enough. Well, there are things in the script for THX 1138 that he ends up kind of redoing, but in a good way, because there's a moment after THX has been mind blocked and he's kind of on the run from the cops. It's kind of a weird moment in the film because it kind of just falls apart for a few minutes. And in the script, there's actually a connector scene where he runs away. He gets onto a train, which kind of will get a, a train later on in the, in the movie, but he gets on this train and he ends up jumping out the back going through these tubes where the train was going. He goes into one tube. He slides down. The bottom of it falls out. And I'm just like, wow, we are in Empire Strikes Back. This is kind of neat. This all the, sounds very exciting. Yes. The the bottom falls out. He falls into a garbage chute. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And there's creatures down at the bottom of the garbage chute. And then there's this weird moment where... There are all of these dark areas. He's in this big dark area and lights will come on and where the creatures are, if the light comes on, somebody somewhere zaps these creatures and they're kind of like looking for these creatures in this area. And at one point he kind of masks himself with one of the creatures dead bodies again, kind of like hiding in a tauntaun. But anyway, then it goes back to the movie that we know, but I'm just like, wow, within a five page scene, there are, you know, five ideas that are going to work their way into other movies at some point or another. Well, it sounds like they worked their way into the right movie. Like that, <laughs> that, I, that seems like it would be really out of place in THX, which again goes back to what I was saying about the limitations kind of better servicing the movie because the rest of THX is so sort of stark and simple in the way it looks and in the, uh, the, the I guess what you could call action in the third acts. That, yeah, a scene like that, I, I can't even imagine that would fit tonally. 
Well, what do you guys think about THX reports Sen because Sen has violated computer code. He has reprogrammed the computer to send Law away. And by this time, Law and THX are in love or as close to what they know of love at this point. And uh, so he, he drops a dime on Sen. Sen goes away, or at least that's what we assume. And then eventually THX gets in trouble for the criminal drug evasion. There's a great sequence in there where he's got his trial. Guilty, of course. He gets poked and prodded like crazy, which just, just goes on forever. But the one thing I like is that as they're doing that, they're showing these graphics up on screen and saying that his uh, organs can be reused, except for like one of his kidneys is bad. But he can be basically can be recycled, kind of like the island, I guess, or Clonus the parts horror. And then he goes into this weird torture scene where it's just the the phrase the banality of evil came through my head because it's basically two dudes talking it's almost like on the job training it sounds like one guy saying like oh well yeah turn this knob here oh wait wait no not not above 4700 that's it okay now watch that reading and is it oh watch the needle on five now watch this it. this knob is loose oh. wait a minute which is the switch to get it out master at the bottom okay there we are and meanwhile thx is like jumping and twitching like he's getting a thousand volts through his system and going into all these weird contortions. Even though it's a strange, strange scene, to me, it's one of the most effective scenes in the movie because it's just so, these guys don't give a shit and they're just doing their job. And it seems, again, like everybody's just, hey, I'm doing my job, whatever. The the kind of implication of that scene is that they're trying to understand or make sense of the human body, especially his, because he's developing emotions, which are completely foreign to these robots and there's a a mention it might be a text mention but when they're doing experiments on him and like shoving things into his eyes that he was he was born naturally like he's an actual birth and then uh law is uh, i don't know if she's like a test tube baby or something but she's not natural no she's natural too oh is she natural i was thinking she was a they say at one point she asked for some different drugs and they go nope we are sorry but we must deny your request Birthborns are not allowed more than five units of interval. It seems like they're just trying to understand because later they find the jars of people that they're essentially manufacturing and just almost experimenting on THX to, to see how he responds in a way that maybe a, uh, a synthetic person wouldn't. There's a line in the script that they, I think they cut out because again, this movie, it gets pretty dense sometimes, especially with the sound design. But when they're looking at the, uh, some dead bodies at one point in the script, they actually talk about how these bodies are being recycled into those plastic widgets. So like nothing is going to waste. And so even the dead bodies are kind of coming back into society and having this second life as these throwaway widgets that they have. Well, that is kind of symbolic of how life is treated in that whole society, isn't it? just disposable there's a line in that same sequence when srt who we'll talk about later when he says they're all empty inside i was just like oh yeah just like all the real people here and just like he is as a hologram but it's like yeah no the the people are very empty inside they have nothing anymore they've given it all up yeah that's one of those do you get it lines that's sort of the the film student george lucas film student lines which i honestly think the movie would be better served if there was way less dialogue because it's a very visual and an atmosphere driven movie but sometimes lucas just can't help himself i guess 
Well, one area where he helped himself, and I'm so glad that he did, is the prison scene. Because I went through and I read two different versions of the script that are out there. There's one that's 116 pages long. There's one that's 96 pages long. I think the final movie is, what, like 86 minutes, something around there? 88 maybe? But anyway, the prison scene where they are in this gorgeous looking all white set and it's just these prisoners talking with one another interacting with one another in one of the versions it goes on for 30 pages and in another one it goes on for 26 pages the final version i think is 11 minutes long which still feels kind of long but can you imagine that sequence going on for half an hour I can imagine it, and I'm glad he didn't do it. And I have a feeling that he probably shot it all, because it's edited in a way that they're just kind of picking and choosing from different conversations as they go around. And I'm really glad that we don't have to hear from everybody. You know, it, I mean, it felt like, um, talk about film student-esque, I mean, it felt like a film student kind of thing, and it felt like almost like a one-act play, where it's just like, we are characters who are in search of an author kind of thing. <laughs> well, and if I recall, all those characters, their uh, assigned letters uh, are all kind of in correlation with like a famous philosopher. Like there's one that's it's sort of a, a shorthand for like Nietzsche. And so it, it, I'm, it's not overt in the movie, thankfully, but I know that was the idea behind it. And yeah, that's very sort of like, I don't know, obvious. Yeah, it seems like they cut it down to being almost all the PTO or Plato character. And he talks a lot, and then it's Sen and THX talking. Well, I can't say to one another, because THX doesn't talk to him very much. He's kind of pissed at him. And then the whole idea of Sen saying uh, allegedly Richard Nixon lines. Now, unfortunately... I'm not as familiar with Richard Nixon as they probably were in 68, 69 when they were making this movie. So I am unaware of him parroting uh, Richard Nixon. But there are times where I'm just like, wow, this dialogue sounds really kind of different than anything else. And I'm guessing that those are the Nixon lines. We need a new unity. But not a unity which discourages dissent. We need dissent. But we need a creative dissent. These guys are all sitting around talking about escape and talking about their plight. And then THX just gets up and walks out and that's it. And that's how he gets out. I love that. That goes along with the, uh, the idea that there's this illusion of authority where ever nobody just thinks to try and leave. They just assume that they're trapped there and they're, you know, sedated too. So that's a part of it. But yeah, no one has ever just gotten up and walked out. Sen cannot handle it. I mean, he's so afraid, and he's just like, wait, I think, is it getting cold in here? The air is thinner? <laughs> just all of these... The psychosomatic. Addict insane. It reminded me a little of uh, the scene in Seven Samurai where they're all sitting around and like, if we had some of their rifles, we, we would be able to at least stand a chance. And that one badass guy, he's, I forget his character's name, but he stands up and he just walks away. And he's like, all right, I'll do it, I guess. But he's he's dead silent and he comes back and he's like, here you go. Like somebody's don't talk about it. Do it. That's exactly the same thing. And we know we know how much Lucas was inspired by Kurosawa. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's a little homage there. 
I love Don Pedro Cali and everything that I've seen him in. And I love when he shows up in this. And it's interesting that they don't make a big deal. Like at one point he just says like, Oh yeah, I'm a hologram. And is, and that he's been kind of stuck in a program for a long time. I guess kind of like Scotty was stuck in the uh, transporter program for a long time and didn't degrade him just coming out of the whiteness and, you know, Oh yeah, you guys, you, you know, you pass the exit. It's right over there and showing them the way and being much more in tune with stuff than any of the real people, except for driving cars. That's one, <laughs> the one thing that. SRT cannot do is drive a car, but the rest of it, he's very intuitive and he kind of screws up and opens up a door that shouldn't be opened up. But anyway, but he gets them out. Oh yeah. He does get him out of there, but there was the one door that's alarmed and he opens that up and you know, then they're like, Oh, Hey, and I like too that. And I didn't realize this until a recent viewing that the police and the overseers, they think that SRT is sin and they're kind of confused by Sen having split off because Sen and SRT and THX, they get separated in this uh, hallway scene where there's just this mass of bodies. And Sen has his storyline where he goes out and he uh, <laughs> finds Ohm, finds the television studio basically where Ohm is. And then I love how he's in there praying and the monk comes in. And he's just like, you can't pray here. You got to pray at one of the temples. Yeah, what are you doing? Gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room. And he sees he sees that it's just an image and there's cameras set up, but he has no idea what fake is. There's no one listening. And he just it's not that he's even willfully ignorant of it. He just has no idea. Well, he see, he comes across like, uh, you know, he gets timid to to escape the way THX does. He comes across like he wants to he wants to work within the system and maybe try and make the system better. As opposed to THX, who wants to just leave completely. So he goes off on his own. THX and SRT are on their own. And if you uh, listen to some of the chatter that's going on with the uh, the police and and the the watchers, they think that SRT is Sen and that they're together. And then they get very confused when that Sen is on his own. And it takes a while for them to even realize that there's a third person because SRT is, he's a non-person. He's not registered whatsoever, even though he's got his, his call numbers, but he's not real. So the way that they kind of freak out about that, there's one moment where it's just like, we have a, a death over here because I think Sen ends up killing that monk. And it's just like, oh, okay. Uh, so how did that happen if they're both over to, uh, together in this other area? And yeah, that's when we kind of get those dirty little secrets of all the fetuses and jars, the dead bodies there. And then when, now this is an interesting thing because THX really wants to find law and eventually they find law in a way. And some reviews will say that this fetus in a jar is law. Like they've recycled law into this fetus. And it's like, no, I think that's actually her son and THX's son, but they don't really make that necessarily that clear. Oh, that's interesting. I'd always interpreted it as just, they got rid of law and this is they just assigned her number to a new, you know, a new uh, jar baby. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're also could could be cloned. Yeah. These people are easily replaceable. Yeah. Kind of the, uh, the impression I got. Well, because she does say at one point that she's pregnant 
And in the original script, they have on the jar, it says 8888 Sex Act, Maternal Law 3417, Paternal Surmise, THX 1138. But that is not in the finished film. When I froze that screen, I could just see it say L-U-H on it, and that was it. I like that it's a little open to interpretation, and I would agree that it seems like it's just kind of like how there's, you know, Logan 5, Logan 6, Logan 7, that this is, you know, Law 33417 again, that they're just going to recycle her because, recycle her number because she's been taken out of the directory and now the number is free again. It's interesting though, that they would, that um, it's the opposite of how naming for married couples would be. Um, instead of taking the husband's last name, La is the mother. So that's what would be assigned regardless of who the father is. I don't know if it's an intentional kind of look at parenting and, and naming, but I don't know. I, I always found that kind of interesting. That the father really has no, well, actually, if we're looking at Lucas, uh, the father doesn't factor in that. Yeah, okay, so it all makes sense. Are you saying it's a virgin birth? No, no. I'm saying that um, Lucas doesn't, he he had some issues with his dad. Uh, (laughs) Not to the degree that Spielberg did, um, apparently, but yeah, yeah. And then we get to the car chase, which... I don't know about you guys, but the car chase goes on a little too long for me. In which version? <laughs> That's a good question. Really, the only version I'm used to is the original version. See, I'm mostly used to the director's cut. That's the one I've seen the most. And aside from the one new shot that is very clearly a new shot and looks like something out of Attack of the Clones, aside from that, I'm I'm fine with the, the pacing of it just because I'm at that point, I'm totally on THX's side. Um, and it, it's so, it's such a, I mean, it matches the, the kind of style of the rest of the movie and that it's very, uh, it's very stark. It's not a super exciting action scene. It's just, it's very driven by his sort of desire to get out. And then the idea that th- these cops are chasing him, but ultimately what does it matter? Because they have no real authority. <laughs> and I think THX has kind of come to realize this at that point. So it's it's there's sort of a comical element to it where it's just he's just going to keep driving. And I like that idea, too, of the budget that they impose and that they can't go over budget for the chase. That it's just like once you hit when a five percent overage, it's just like, that's it. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate bureaucracy, isn't it? Money over justice. I do love that initial moment with uh, LRT. One, when he's awkwardly trying to get into his car. And he's just way too big for it. Oh. And then and then when he finally does, just immediately slams into a pole. I, I don't know how intentional the perfect comedic, comedic timing is, but it is perfect comedic timing. It is. It is. <laughs> it's kind of smart because if you think about it, where would they learn to drive cars? I mean, if he's a hologram and... That's something I was always a little confused about. Is he saying he's a hologram because that's his job? Because he's not actually a hologram. Does he just believe that? He could just believe it. It's very underdeveloped, which I kind of like, because there's so many aspects of the technology and the uh, the way the system runs that is not fully explained. It's just sort yeah. of, this is the way it's always been. But it, it's interesting that the the hologram is the one that has kind of the most humanity. Like He always looks so happy to just exist. You know, I, I mentioned that all of the people that are on television are black. Our friend SRT is black, 
And that's the only time we see black people is on television. You know, it's kind of the opposite of how it is today, right? It's like, oh, I I never see. (laughs) Well, I guess there's a lot of minorities that we don't see in real life, and we definitely don't see them on television. So, but it's just like, it's so strange that like they're relegated to just this kind of entertainment portion and they're not out in society whatsoever like when we see that mass of bodies in the hallway or the the halls um in the what is a shopping mall but doubling for uh you know the the underground there's no black people whatsoever they're just all on tv all on this hologram stuff so yeah and then as far as srt being real or not real I always kind of think of the doctor from Voyager and I'm just like, well, he could do stuff like he could push a pen and stuff. But, you know, I mean, I'm glad that I'm glad that Robert Duvall didn't walk up to him and be like, like stick his hand through him or anything. (laughs) I really like the fact that a famous personality type character is larger than life. And that man is immense. It almost looks like a visual effect when he first <laughs> walks up to Robert Duvall and uh, and Donald Pleasance. And he's, yeah, it's like you what know, inspired he... the Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're looking at the back of their heads and then he's facing straight towards the camera. And yeah, he looks so massive. He's towering over them and it almost looks phony. Like he yeah. can't be that much bigger than them, but he is. <laughs> what, else, what else has he been in? Because I'm not too familiar with him. Well, he was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He was one of the mutants. He was in, uh, we actually talked to him a while back for Sugar Hill. And I will have a link to that in the show notes to hear his interview. Cause I did talk to him a little bit about THX 1138. He was in his biggest role was, believe it or not, Dukes of Hazard. He was like the sheriff from the next county and he was trying to get them Duke boys, but moreover, he knew that Boss Hogg and um, his crew were crooked, so he was always kind of on Boss Hogg's case. He was the law. And I sure hope the Duke boys don't have to go back to Chickasaw for a while. I wanted to talk a little bit about when the car chase is over and he goes through that area with the shell dwellers. I have to say that area isn't necessarily filmed the best because it just feels really kind of choppy to me. And I'm wondering if they had to cut around some bad uh, effects that were going on. But it's interesting that these shell dwellers, who we see a shell dweller in the prison scene, uh, uh, who's a little person, the shell dwellers to me are kind of like proto-Jawas or Ugnats, kind of like an idea that he's going to recycle later on. And it seems like, to me, they would be go around and take all the scraps and do whatever the hell they needed to do with that stuff. But anyway, and then the, the final shot of the film is it's always interesting to me that it's a sunset instead of a sunrise. And that's almost to me like a big middle finger towards the audience just like hey thx got out and 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 i love it for this hey thx got out we're not going to show you what the outside world looks like whatsoever and the sun is setting so he's not even going to be able to see what the outside world looks like very long and it's just like it's not that message of hope that you expect it's not the end of Tommy it's not the end of uh you know Logan's run it is he comes out the sun sets movie's over there's not that next beat it's the end of the graduate it's the now what ending the okay i'm out uh what's here now what 
And I guess people really put a lot of weight onto the bird that flies across the sun, where if you blink, you might miss that. But there was a lot of debate, and I'm surprised that the bird survived through the director's cut, because I wouldn't be surprised if Lucas had gone in, digitally removed that bird. Or digitally turned it into some sort of sci-fi cartoon creature. Yeah, it's a Minoc now. Let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play, God, just a bevy of interviews with this one. The first is with Brian J. Jones, the author of George Lucas' Life. The second is with the co-writer of the Electronic Labyrinth short, Matthew Wilder. Next, we'll hear from LUH3417 herself, Maggie McComey. We'll hear from the trial pontifex, Bruce Chassé. And finally, it is NCH himself, Mr. Sid Haig. And we'll be back with all of those after these brief messages. Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gory the Ghoul could make up. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the popcorn Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week, we choose a movie based on a monthly theme, and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? 
Will the owner of a red and black land speeder vehicle ID THX1138 please return to your craft? You are parked in a no hover area. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from Brian J. Jones, the author of George Lucas, A Life. Tell me a little bit about you. Tell me how you kind of got into the writing game. I was an English major in college, and every English major thinks they want to be the, uh, the next great American novelist. Uh, my issue, as I discovered quickly, was I didn't know how to plot. I always say that's one of the reasons I got into biographies, because at least I know the general story the whole time. Actually, at my my day job for years is I've worked for elected officials and I had worked in the U S Senate for about 10 years. And as I discovered later, briefing your member is actually fantastic practice for biography because your member will say something like this other Senator wants me to co-sponsor this bill. He's drafting, see what you can find out and let me know what you think. So you go out and you talk to people on both sides of the aisle. You call the Library of Congress. You get information. You get copies of the bill. You get copies of reports from various organizations. You read through it. You write it up as best you can. You compress and analyze and you make your recommendation. Try to keep it short, which is always my problem. And that's actually what you do with biography. You're going out and sorting through information and talking to people and getting information from many sources you can and compressing it and telling your story and putting together your narrative. It was fantastic practice for biography, though I didn't actually know that at the time. So what got you interested in doing a biography about Washington Irving? I got interested in Irving because I'm a big fan of Christmas. And I had read this book called The Battle for Christmas, which is all about how Americans have these very misty-eyed views of Christmas. And we, you know, Christmas tradition, we, you know, believe goes back 500 years and Christmas carols and people coming in on sleighs and dancing and waffle bowls and Yule logs. And I'm reading this and, and the guy goes through all this. He says, and you know, actually, Washington Irving made all of that up and told you that's the way it always was. And so that's why Americans believe that we have all these ancient Christmas traditions. And I had never heard that before. So I went out and I bought uh, Irving's book, which is uh, – it's funny. Uh, the Irving's Christmas stories are what I would say are hidden in plain sight because uh, it's in the sketchbook, which he wrote in 1819. And the first story out of the 32 is Rick Van Winkle, and the last story is Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And then nobody can really name anything else in between those two. But there's five Christmas stories right in the middle of that. And it's all about Irving's narrator coming up to Bracebridge Hall, and they're celebrating all these traditions. And it's very obvious from the narration that uh, their host is off his rocker, and it's just making all these traditions up. So anyway, so after I read that, I, you know, I was really interested in, in the voice in it because Irving is, you know, winking at the audience. It's a very modern voice that I was really surprised by. And the more I read Irving and the more I read about him, the more I really thought he was a fantastic subject for a biography. And uh, just and it, it turned out he, he was a terrific subject. You know, as I, I always say, he was sort of the Forrest Gump of the 19th century because if there was somebody famous, he probably knew them. If there was some big earth-shattering event, somehow he was always in the middle of it. <laughs> so a really, really fascinating guy. It's a really fun subject to do. So how do you go from Washington Irving to Jim Henson? They're both these huge pop culture figures of their time. It's not really that much of a leap. Um, Irving is kind of, not necessarily the Jim Henson, but um, you know, Irving's like Sinatra in the 19th century. You know, anything Irving writes, it, everybody wants, you know, Irving to endorse them for political office and they all they all want him to say nice things about him and they, you know, want them, him to go to all their parties. He was actually appointed ambassador to uh, Spain, you know, at one point in his life for four years. Um, so he, you know, he's this huge, huge American celebrity, sort of our first genuine 
American pop culture figure and had a personal life that was very different from his public persona that he cultivated very hard. I mean, he's really, you know, the sort of the first thing we would think of as, as a celebrity. If he was renovating his house, he would write a book because he knew everyone would buy it, even if the book sort of stunk. Um, so he's, you know, he's John Grisham in that regard. So really, really a fascinating guy. And so Jim um, is not that much of a leap off of it, but that was one that came about because I'd been reading about, and I wish I had a great story for how I ended up on this one, but I somehow I was I ended up over on, on Jim Henson's Wikipedia page, and uh, and had read something on that page, and I thought, oh gee, I wonder where they got that, and went down to the bottom of the page to see if it was cited, and as I found out later, Muppet fans actually are really great about citing things, but um, and everything cited was Jim Henson the work, Jim Henson uh, you know designs and doodles, Jim Henson imagination, it was all about the work, there wasn't a book on him. And so that started a conversation with the Henson Company and the Henson Jim Henson legacy, and uh, you know, sort of opening up a discussion with them, a conversation about doing doing Jim's story because he had never been done, which surprised me. And at that point, he'd been dead for twenty years. So that that was a five year process from start to finish on that, from the time I approached the Hensons till the book came out was almost exactly five years. So that was uh, it was just it was another sort of unexpected project that it just. It's another one in my pop culture wheelhouse because I'm Sesame Street Generation 1 and I'm Muppets sort of Generation 1 because I was 2 when Sesame Street debuted and I was 9 when the Muppet Show debuted. And, you know, I saw Dark Crystal in the theater and uh, Labyrinth in the theater, which really actually secured my Henson uh, cool with Lisa Henson when I told her that. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I'd seen all those. Theater. So uh, so it was it was a, a terrific follow up. subject. I couldn't have asked for a better subject. It was really just a terrific, terrific subject to do. How was the family like to work with on the project? You know, it was a, a getting to know each other process that lasted about two years because they, you know, they they're really you know want to be careful with Jim's legacy. They want to be sure if you if they because if they let you in, you're in all the way. And uh, so you know, they're very wary of strangers. So it was one of those things that you know we were getting to know each other and how, how would you do this? And then they would tell me okay. Then they'd say wait a minute no. Then they would say maybe. And it went on and on for a long time. And finally, I said, um, you know, you guys are a Hollywood family, so let me give you an audition tape. And I didn't actually film myself singing and dancing or anything. But what I did is I went to the Library of Congress uh, and I pulled every article that had been written on Jim when he was in high school and his freshman year in college here in the D.C. area. Because he went to the University of Maryland and grew up in, in you know, went to Northwest High School. So all, of the, all those local papers in the Library of Congress. So I wrote sort of a sample chapter on Jim Henson at 18 years old on television, you know, creating the Muppets in Washington, D.C., and sent that off to them so they could see this is the way I would do this. And this is, the you know, I want Jim's voice to tell the story as much as possible. And, I, you know, I want to try to get if I can get out of the way, that's what I want to try to do on this and sent that out to them. And, and it, that actually was what kicked the door open because they read that and said, OK, we see we see what you mean. We see how you would do this. Um, you know, we can see, you know, you're not you don't have some weird shenanigans angle or anything. So so that was really you know what what opened the door and as i said when you're in you're in all the way um because one of the things i really wanted was their private archives because his archives are privately held they're not at a university they're in their offices in long island city so i really wanted to have access to those um those private archives which i got and it was and uh the other great help is you know that it's one of those things you say oh i'd love to talk to frank oz they can get you frank oz 
So, um, so they, they were really, really helpful and uh, encouraging. And, you know, I, I sent them copies of everything. I sent them drafts the entire way so they could see what I was up to and see what I was doing. And it wasn't authorized in the sense that they could stop anything if they didn't like it. But I did, you know, I did make the process very open with them saying, you know, here's what I'm writing. And, you know, I sent them the first drafts and they all, they, every one of them found I had made a major chronological error. Um, so, you know, that, that was great. I had them on board right away to point those things out. So it was, you know, it was, it was great having them there sort of as a spot check and they're, you know, they're, they're a really tight knit family. You're dealing with five kids and the widow at the time. And so that was, uh, you know, a, a, a tough crowd, tough room every once in a while. George Lucas is not dead. He's had a bunch of books written about him before. So why George Lucas? Well, not necessarily about him. There's only, only two about him in a way. Um, there's tons and tons of stuff on his work, but there really isn't much on him. Uh, and partly that's because one of the books about him that was written in 83, he vowed at that point to never speak to anybody on the record again. That was one that came about because um, my publisher of the Jim Henson book was Random House, who published all the Star Wars novels. And word had gotten back through various channels and came to me through my editor that Lucas had read the Jim Henson bio and really liked it. So that was the point. I thought, well, that's, you know, let me... Let, let's let's do him next then so i wrote him a letter and sent it off to him and uh <laughs> you know, I, I wrote it took me about three weeks to write this thing but sent it off to him and it was right at the time he had so, just sold the company and was uh you know trying to get his museum built and so on and he actually wrote back and said no this isn't something i'm interested at all in doing but um what i had discovered is i had already done enough research that i there was just no way i was going to let go of that project at that point too way too good of a project Lots and lots of stuff out there. And eventually, as I discovered, almost an overwhelming amount of stuff to deal with. The guy talks a lot, talks a lot more than he thinks he does. And um, and it actually worked a lot better as a biographer. And I hope for the readers that when you can actually make it an archival research book, it, it's a lot more fun, for example, to <laughs> rather than have, you know, Gary Kurtz or somebody telling you in 2016, well, in 1976, we actually, you know, we were struggling with the with the with the company, but we knew what we had. And, uh, you know, we were confident that we were going to we were going to make a great movie, even if they lost faith. With us. It's so much more interesting to, you know, find Lucas seething to Starlog magazine and, you know, September of 1976. And he's pissed off that Fox, you know, Fox has abandoned him out in Tunisia and nothing is working and everything breaks and they won't give him the money they need to finish this because they're cheap and they're used car salesmen. <laughs> he's just furious with them. And, you know, he says, I, I didn't get any of it on film and I only got about a third of what I wanted. And I'm going to be looking at this movie makes a dime. So, you know, it actually turns out to be much more exciting when you get him in the here and now rather than when you get people reflecting on everything 40 years later. What was he like to work with on the project or how much involvement did he have? Zero point zero. No, after, you know, I wrote to him and said, you know, that I and when he wrote back and said, no, that was sort of, that was sort of the end of the story there in that regard. I, I had no contact with him. So you just went off on your own and you did this? Yeah. I mean, it's again, it's, it's you know, it was a gigantic archival uh, you know, archival research, um, almost to the point where as I was telling everybody, I, I despaired of ever finishing it because there's just, there's so much stuff out there. And again, there's, there's not a lot of books on him. There's tons on the work, which is great. Um, but if you want to try to find him, you've got to dig through, you know, the Kansas city star. And, and, you know, I, what I really found was helpful was these really small town newspapers, that in the you know early 70s and late 70s are just crying for content. 
Um, and if Lucas had done an interview with the AP, um, you know, the, the L.A. Times ran eight inches of it because they were the L.A. Times. They have thousands of other things to report on. But this little newspaper in Oklahoma, they ran all 32 inches because they needed to fill the space. And they put a big headline that says Star Wars creator discusses making a film and, you know, put a lot of pictures of Han Solo and everybody, and everybody read it. So that was where you can you could find a lot of places at a lot of times when Lucas had sat down and, and it sort of opened the vein. And is, you know, is talking to these reporters in these little towns and talking a lot. But, you know, the big papers didn't necessarily use, but the little newspapers were using almost the entire thing. You would find you would find a lot of stuff uh, where just, you know, nobody thought anybody would be looking. I found one of my favorite stories is when Lucas would apply for zoning permits when he was working out of Skywalker and he wanted to expand or he wanted to build a building, he had to go through zoning out in Marin County. So I would pull those records to see what the public hearing was and what the public input was. And usually he didn't say anything, but they had submitted stuff through their attorney so on. But the public comment could be very interesting. And at one point, people were saying, well, you know, actually, um, out there on the property, they were going to build uh, – Lucas was going to build this this little you know cottage for he and Linda Ronstadt – to sort of you know live you know live in out there this little they were calling it this love cottage they were going to build a little love cottage and I really I thought that was really sweet actually I was like who knew he was such a hopeless romantic you know so so it's like you know that's where you find you find stuff like that in these weird little places where you just never expect to find it it must have been interesting because he was so famous after Star Wars came out but before that and I know uh, American Graffiti was a, a huge hit but. Those times around THX 1138 and before must have been really difficult to research. You can find him through Coppola for the most part because he's, you know, his his wagons hitched to that cart. Or no, wait, no, that's a bad metaphor. His wagons hitched to that horse. So there's a lot of people covering Coppola, and Lucas is kind of hovering around in the background. And Coppola is great about holding court at Zoetrope, you know, and, and and having tons of reporters standing around while he's railing against the system, and Lucas is standing there in the background with his hands shoved down in his pockets. And the, so you can so you can you can actually find him if you if you follow Coppola. Uh, he was doing a lot of a lot of the behind the scenes work then. Uh, so you f- you find him interviewed there. There's a really interesting little bit of film. It was a uh, right after he had done THX, for example, he did this hour long interview with just almost like a local PBS affiliate um, where they're just walking kind of out in in um, in the canyons out there in L.A. And Lucas is just railing against the Hollywood system the entire time about, you know, about how they're only in it for the money and they're screwing the artists. And he's this really angry young man who hasn't done anything yet. So, so you know, anyway, you've got to you can sort of follow him around, but you've got to what you have to do is you you hang your tracker on Coppola and find him that way. So, what were some of the rich veins that you had um, when it came to the research for Lucas? He himself is a is a great resource. Again, he doesn't always necessarily know it, but he talks a lot and he does director commentaries on almost every movie he's done. He sits for interviews. You know, John Stewart interviews him at Star Wars Celebration for five and a half hours. And he's just having a great time and he's, you know, he's, he's laughing and he's, and he's talking. So you, you're just, just, there's so much stuff out there. Again, that was almost the problem was, you know, when you're dealing with the living subject and they keep talking, for example, there was the fantastic, uh, Charlie Rose, Disney white slavers interview that happened while I was still finishing this up. So, you know, there's, there's always something else going on. And that's, what's, that's the big challenge with the living subject is that your goalpost keeps moving even as you're writing it, because it's like, well, what if, if this happens, this is going to change attack of the narrative once I get to the last third of the book. So, so the, 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 just the great thing about Lucas is, I mean, first of all, there's so many books about Star Wars and everybody's got a strong opinion about Star Wars that you can, you can find lots and lots of stuff on that. That's the danger zone because uh, Star Wars fans are, you know, very knowledgeable 
very opinionated, um, which is probably one of the reasons Lucas threw up his hands finally at one point and said, I'm done with Star Wars. Um, but, you know, and this is not quite related, but I, I find it so interesting. That even after this guy has sold his company, we all still really care what he thinks about Star Wars. Uh, you know, this, he, he's walked away from it and, and people really want to know. And the poor guy, you know, this is the way people, even people who love George Lucas, he's such a divisive figure among even the Star Wars fans that once they do find out what he thinks, if he says he likes it, then half the people throw up their hands and say, well, that must mean it sucks. And the other, the other people, you know, say, huzzah, that must mean it's great. Someone obviously gets it if the creator is on board on it. So, you know, the, even among people who love Star Wars and even love him, he's incredibly divisive in that regard. So how do you decide to tackle a subject like that? You talked about the goalposts is moving. And you talk about how there's so much stuff written about Star Wars. How do you climb that mountain? Because it's there, Sydney. Why not? You know, I mean, what a fantastic subject. And if you're my age, again, I was nine the summer Star Wars came out. I mean, it is a a dream project to do. I mean, to go back and, you know, watch Star Wars and, and call it work is spectacular and, you know, go through the making of, and, and it's just, it, you know, for people who biographers love research and the hardest part about biography is knowing when you have, to, when you're going to finally stop the research and start writing it. And, and that was one of the hardest parts with this book is because there's just so much cool stuff. You know, you get to you get to read about, um, you know, the creation of Pixar and, you know, you can read the Steve Jobs bio and Lucas is, you know, you can see Lucas through the bars in there, you know, debating with with Pix with David, you know, arguing with Jobs over whether the asking price is too high on this and Jobs saying, I think I'll wait you out because I think your price is too high. And of course, he ended up being right. Lucas had to sell it in a fire sale. So, it, it, you know, he, know he he's he's such a big figure and he's done so much. That it does become a point where it's like, well, I, you know, I, I have to stop doing the reading and I have to stop doing the researching and the interviewing and the listening and the watching and just finally sit down and figure out how to start this. So that when you when you ask why do that, well, it's it's again, it's why wouldn't you want to? It's a it's a fun project. And if you're a pop culture junkie, it's a dream project. And again, when you're the age I am, it's one of those things that's always been in your you know, it's almost embedded itself after the fact in your DNA. I mean, it's everybody my age, we all can debate Star Wars. We all know Star Wars. We all have, we can all talk about, you know, fighting over the, the 12 inch Boba Fett figure and which were the best figures and which, you know, the, the horrible uh, Star Wars uh, Christmas special or uh, so it's like every, you know, it's, it's one of those that every conversation becomes a, a, a dialogue about Star Wars or Indiana Jones. It's just, I mean, it's a great world to be working in. Really more than the why is is the how. So when you finally do reach that point and you stop and you start writing this project, how are you going to differentiate yourself from other things that people have written about Lucas before? You know, one of the, the big challenges with him and one of the problems with other with I don't say it's not a problem, but we, we tend to think of Lucas in silos. He's the Star Wars guy or he's the Indiana Jones guy or he's the ILM guy or he's the Lucas games guy or whatever. Like we think of him in silos. And so there's books about every silo, but no one's ever put the silos together and made a gigantic barn, I guess to really mangle the metaphor. But, um, you know, there's always been books about specific things he does and fantastic books. You know I mean? There's great books, huge books on ILM. There's huge books on Pixar where sometimes Lucas is a major player. Sometimes he's a background player, but no one's ever tried to put them all in context. And it's, you know, when you can actually stop thinking about them in silos and, and start overlapping them and, you know, putting them in context with each other, um, 
that's when the accomplishments become even more remarkable, I think, because you look at the timelines on these things and how many balls the guy has in the air at a given time. And, you know, it's like it, Empire Strikes Back is in his notebooks practically before Star Wars hits the theater. You know, I mean, he, like he's already plotting on this and knows me and he's got ILM at work already. and He's got artists drawing things. And then you get into the 80s and he's, you know, he's plotting THX and he's got Pixar in his back pocket because he wants this great equipment. And there's so many things going on that are huge. Every single thing he is involved in is something, you know, even if it's a dud like Howard the Duck. Um, but we, it, it had never really been told in a comprehensive narrative way it had been done it had been analyzed as here's george lucas in the story of pixar here's george lucas in the story of the making of star wars and so on it had never been i don't want to say contextualized that sounds too academic but it never all been put together and stirred together and told as a comprehensive story where you get it all in context with everything else and i think one of the things i'm really pleased with 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 the book is i think when i've been reading the reviews of it so on is that's one thing people are taking away from it which i'm really happy about is they're like wow this guy really did a lot and it's a lot of really important stuff you know he he really did sort of define digital filmmaking and he really did make the uh the director the artist uh and he really did uh you know figure out how to make movies sound great in the theater he deserves a lot of credit for that so that's one of the things i'm really pleased about actually did you manage to track down his student films yes yeah i've seen i've got all of them Uh they're all really interesting and worth watching some of them are still they still really pop. Others are kind of, you know, they're not as impressive. But if you think about them in the context of 1967, there's a little bit of difference to them. Um, you know, you look at something like after after he's done his early student films, like Look at Life and even something like Freiheit, pretty exciting. And then you see something like 14208 where he's following a race car around. Not really that exciting. But again, on the other hand, when you step back and look at it in the in the context of his career, you can see, you, you, you see things happening. You're like, OK. Here he is sort of distancing himself from the technology and he's watching it from afar and he's almost removed himself from it. And of course, it's a yellow race car, which shows up in everything Lucas does. And the sound in it, as it comes by the camera, it sounds like a TIE fighter when it comes by. So you can see, you know, you can see a lot of things going on, even in the films where you're kind of like, that wasn't as interesting as something like THX, the student film, or even Look at Life, his very, very first uh, student film, which he did in an animation class. It's a one minute film of just him throwing random images at the screen from Life magazine and Look magazine and having a, a percussive soundtrack over it and making the images look like they're moving in, in time with the with the, the music, which is something nobody in class was supposed to do. Uh, that's the other cool thing about Lucas. If you gave him a rule, he was going to break it. But that film still, I mean, you want, I show that when I talk about Lucas and, and people are still kind of sitting with their mouths hanging up because it's, you know, it's loud and it's kind of exciting, even though it's just a lot of static images that he's panning past very quickly. It's still really well done. You know, even something like Free Height kind of works, even though it can be a little naive. But THX, the student film, is still, I think, still really holds up. It still doesn't look like anything else. Um, you know, the way it's been, you know, he's got it running through filters and he's got it looking like you're looking through, you know, the police. You can tell when you're looking through the policeman's uh, lens because it's yellow and he's got that weird soundtrack with, you know, air traffic control chatter on it. And there's so much going on. The student film is still even, you know, 15 minutes of it's still really exciting to watch, which is odd because it's essentially just, you know, 14 minutes of people running down hallways and looking at computer screens and clicking buttons. But there's the way it's put together and the way it's edited together and the way it sounds, it remains constantly interesting. I think it's very, very impressive. I think you can see why it was winning every major, you know, student award back in 1968. 
What were some, some of the more surprising things that you found out when you were doing your research? One of the things I love about him, and this, this is one of the things that stunned me, and it actually really defines who he is and makes George Lucas George Lucas. And the, the term I've come up with is it's how charmingly reckless he is in the sense that, um, you know, this is a guy who was raised very conservative in Modesto, California. His father owned the stationery shop. Um, Lucas could have taken the easy way out even as a teenager and just because he was a terrible student. Um, and could have taken the easy way out and just said, look, I'm a horrible student and I don't have to, want to worry about college. I don't want to worry about anything. I'll just go run the stationery store and I'll be set the rest of my life. I can just walk through the doors and take the reins. Luke's doesn't do that and has huge fights with his father about it. And, you know, he's out screwing around instead and he's he's cruising all night, staying out all night and, and moving from car to car. And he's drag racing and he's chopping his car and, you know, doing all those things that parents wring their hands over and, you know, really going around around his father and, and screaming at his father that he'll never be president of the company and he's going to be a millionaire before he's 30 and he's not going to become a stationary store owner and sort of goes all in in film school. And, you know, it turns out he was he was it was a happy accident. He was really good at it. Found out he was a fantastic editor. But throughout his career, Lucas is constantly doing this. He's he's being you know, I mean, there's a lot of times when he's he's sort of lecturing Coppola, how Coppola shouldn't be taking all of his money and investing it in Apocalypse Now. And don't take all your money and build a city, Francis. You want to build a little community, then invest the rest of it. You don't want to put all your money in American Zoetrope. Lucas takes all of his profits from Star Wars, for example, and dumps them not only in Empire Strikes Back, but Skywalker Ranch. I know that's where he's trying to buy his own creative freedom. But if Empire tanks, he's done. Um, and he does that when he's got the money rolling in from American Graffiti. He takes all of his all of his profits from American Graffiti, which are substantial, and starts dumping that right into his Flash Gordon thing. This script that he's circulating that nobody understands and no one believes in and nobody has special effects. So he's got to build these himself. Again, taking all of his money, investing it right back in himself, in his company. People thought he was insane. So that happens throughout his – he even does it again with the prequels. He takes – most of his money and dumps it in developing the, the CGI technology and, you know, renting out sound stages for two years in Australia and, you know, t- taking what he at first thought was going to end up being a $50 million film ends up costing north of $100 million, which, of course, he makes all, all makes back. So he just does this constantly throughout his career. That was what really surprised me because, again, you, you forget that something, you know, Star Wars, Impression of it, they're essentially independent films. Um, which again, I had sort of forgotten until you start looking at the way these things were almost self-financed as they were being put together. How did he and Coppola finally meet? How was that? What was that first interaction? Yeah. You know, this is one of my very favorite stories because again, this is very much his personality. Lucas, because of the success of the student film, THX, THX 11384EB, just for the listeners, um, you know, got Lucas a lot of attention nationally, got him in Time magazine and got him in The New York Times and, you know, got him a lot of publicity. And it was, you know, winning awards all over, winning awards in foreign countries. As a result of this, Lucas ends up winning a scholarship to go be an observer, which is a word Lucas hates over at the Warner Brothers lot. And Lucas initially thinks he's going to go over there and maybe he'll work his way into the anime. He loves the, the Looney Tunes cartoon, so he thinks at first he can at least start making cartoons over at Warner. Finds out that's been shuttered, I think, since 1961, so he's got no chance getting into animation. And he's wandering around the film lot, and there's really nothing going on. And Lucas wants desperately to be making a movie, be doing anything but observing, and there's not even really anything to observe. Except there's one film in production on the lot, <laughs> this terrible film version of a terrible 
uh, musical called Finian's Rainbow with Fred Astaire. Very shopworn Fred Astaire by that point. That's being directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who's sort of the boy wonder of the moment. He uh, had made your big boy now for Warner. And he's, you know, he's actually living the dream in a sense. Nobody in film school believes you're ever going to make a film. And Coppola's actually done this. He's come out of UCLA and he's making films. So he's he's directing uh, Finian's Rainbow. And, and Lucas wanders over onto the edge of the set and he's standing with his, yeah, I'm sure with his arms folded and his mouth tightly set and judging the way he does. And standing there observing, which again, he hates to do. Watching Coppola direct, watching the goings and coming on set. And Coppola, as, as both Lucas and Coppola said independently, they both noticed each other immediately because they're the only people under 50 on the set. And as Luke said, and we both had beards. But uh, Coppola goes over to somebody and says, who is this kid over here? And they said, oh, that's that's your young observer from USC. So Coppola kind of saunters over to Lucas very casually and says, so uh, do you see anything interesting yet? And uh, Lucas looks up and he says, nope, not yet. And Coppola, and Coppola says, and that is how I met George Lucas. So it's a very George Lucas introduction with Lucas giving a very frank, I don't give a damn opinion uh, to Coppola, who just loves it, just loves it. And, and that's sort of the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And, uh, you know, Lucas throughout his, his childhood had always sort of attached himself to sort of big brother figures. And Coppola fills that role for him immediately. There are two guys, Coppola is, I think, six or seven years older, but there are two guys who are really – they really have the sort of same worldview on art. Like they believe the artist should be in charge. Uh, you know, they believe that they should do everything they can to empower the artist, for example, to make the kind of movie they want to make. But their approaches are very different. Lucas, again, even though he is charmingly reckless, is a lot more conservative than Coppola. And Coppola is the one, as Lucas always says, wants to jump off the cliff. And Lucas is the one standing behind him saying, Francis, maybe you should think about this. So, um, you know, there's a great interview that's very telling where the two of them are sitting together and the interviewer says, what would you do with $2 billion? And Coppola says, I'd use it and build a city. And Lucas says, I'd take a billion of it, build a town, and then I'd invest the rest of it. So, so it's very, very much the dynamic of the relationship. They have similar goals, but very different forms of execution in that. What was their working relationship like with THX 1138, the feature film? Because wasn't it Coppola kind of helped make that a reality? Coppola's name is what got that movie made. Um, Coppola wasn't on set all that much with Lucas. He sort of was was content to you know let Lucas sort of do his thing, make his make his very artistic film. The movie never would have gotten made had Coppola not been on board. THX is sort of the first film that comes out of the big dream of Zoetrope. Um, after the and Francis has made The Rain People. And as he is driving across the United States filming The Rain People, this is on the heels of Easy Rider. And I always tell people you can't under, understate the importance of Easy Rider in this because Easy Rider let everybody know, sort of sent the message that you don't need the studio necessarily. You can film out on the road and you know you might need the studio to distribute it, but you can film your movie out on the road and you can edit it. And this is exactly what Coppola is doing with The Rain People and Lucas is his right-hand man the entire time. And they're in this caravan driving across the country and they're stopping to film whenever they feel like it. They don't really have a schedule. They're sweet-talking their way into parades so they can film parades and football games. And and uh, they end up holding themselves up in a shoe store in Nebraska so they, they can edit it. And they have the dailies flown in. And you know they, they don't need the studio. And it's a real eye-opening moment for both Coppola and Lucas that they can be out here doing this. And they don't have to do this on a, on a studio back lot they're not beholden to the studio and in fact when they're out on the road the suits in hollywood aren't checking up on them to find out what's going on it's it's a it's real freedom at that moment and so zoetrope american zoetrope comes out of that desire to sort of do it all 
away from the prying eyes of Hollywood. Now, Coppola's got this grandiose vision where, again, he wants to build the city. He wants to build the sound stages. He wants his own private helicopter and air fleet. You know, he wants to he wants to do it all. And Lucas says, you know, that's, we should make it more like a fraternity house, not a city. But Coppola's got this very grandiose vision. But but goes to, you know, goes back to Warner on, on having done Finian's and having done the Rain People, goes to Warner and he brings them a package deal of seven scripts. And one of the things he told Lucas to do when they were out making the Rain People is he said, you know, no one's going to take you serious as a director, George, unless you can write. So you need to learn how to write. And the first thing you need to do is you should write a script based on your THX college film. So Lucas, who agonizes over writing, is a terrible speller, and he just it's he, he compares it to bleeding on the page, and slaves over writing the script for THX. He would talk about how he'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and he would write the script for two hours, and then at six o'clock he'd start doing his work for Coppola, doing continuity and things like that. So he's really slaving over the script. So that's one of the scripts Coppola takes with him to Warner. He's got seven scripts boxed up. He's got Apocalypse Now is in there. The Conversation is in there. Uh, THX is in there. And so he goes in with these seven films and says, you know, this is all part of the deal. You guys can back these movies, and these are the movies we're going to make. So when Warner gives them money, THX is the first movie that they're ready to roll with because they've got Lucas ready to go. They've got the script ready to go. So on the strength of Coppola going in there and sort of he sort of bluffs Warner a little bit, like basically tells them they're already shooting the movie. Um, and so they can either pay for it or don't. So Coppola sort of bluffs his way into getting the money. But but he's the one who goes in there and purely on the power of the Francis Ford Coppola personality almost more than anything else, gets the backing they need to make THX. And that's also sort of the seed money that builds American Zoetrope at that point. At that point, Lucas says, you know, people had jobs. People had money to start doing things. That, that's that's really the birth, at least fiscally, of American Zoetrope built with the money Warner had given them for THX. If memory serves, THX did not necessarily uh, break a lot of box office records. No, it, it really didn't. You know, the critics, I don't think it's fair to say they were split. I think the critics were actually leaning in his direction on this more than the audiences were. Critics, I think, were willing to give it the benefit of the doubt as a maybe a failed experiment. Um, you know, Roger Ebert, I think, is one of them who says this is definitely somebody pursuing their own artistic vision. You know, really got it. I'm sure Lucas was happy with that because there was somebody that got it. Understood the artist was trying to make you know make a statement on this. Uh, so there was you know a lot of reviewers really thought that it was at least interesting that it was doing something different that it didn't look like a lot of other movies, which is definitely one of the things you can still say that still doesn't look like anything else. But uh, but audiences just were not interested. It was a little too, as his wife Marcia said, it was this artsy fartsy movie that nobody saw. Can you tell me about? The importance of Marsha Lucas to George Lucas's work? Marsha's importance cannot be overstated, and she was his secret weapon. She was a spectacularly good film editor. She was actually uh, Martin Scorsese's editor of choice uh, in the early days. Uh, she actually is the one who's sort of paying their bills while Lucas is out developing his Flash Gordon thing and spending all their American graffiti money. She's editing films for Martin Scorsese and, and you know, keeping the lights on for them. But more than anything, she's got a number of things going for her. But here's, here's the two big ones. One of the things she she has going for her, she's, first of all, a spectacularly good editor. She's the one who almost single-handedly edits the Battlestar assault sequence in Star Wars. You know, you go back and watch that movie, and it's astonishing how you can tell exactly what's going on. Even with all the ships, all the pilots, all the chatter going on, you know what's going on. And Marsh is the one that put that sequence together. But – uh, and this is her other big superpowers, I would say. She she had the ability. She had this really great intuitive sense of story and knew how to gauge 
audience expectations and what would excite an audience and what an audience felt they needed. So when she's editing um, the Death Star Assault, for example, Lucas's original script had Lucas had Luke making two runs on the trench and not just one. Marsha's one. He said that's a that's a waste of time. It's got to just be one. So that's just let's edit that out so it's just one run. The other thing she did was pulled out a lot of the pilots. She had kept a lot of the chatter in, but she said, there's too many pilots. You can't keep it all straight. We've got to, we've got to make it clearer who's talking in here. So the the clarity you're seeing in the assault scene is primarily due to Marcia's sense of story, you know, her sense of, of being able to see the movie as an audience would see it, which is actually a real gift for a film editor. And she's the one who told Lucas when they, they were getting ready to premiere the movie for the first time. She said, um, if the audience doesn't cheer when Han Solo comes back in the Millennium Falcon at the end, then the movie doesn't work. And uh, and sure enough, when the Falcon comes in at the end and, and shoots the TIE fighters and rescues Luke, the, the place just went wild. And they knew that it had worked. But it was Marsh who said, you know, that's the moment that's going to gauge the audience response on this. She actually plays an important part even in something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which she didn't edit. But she's the one who, after she watched the first cut of the movie, uh, went back to both Lucas and Spielberg and said, you know, you guys have a problem here in that we get to the end of the movie and we never see Marion again after the sequence where they open the arc. You need to let the audience know what happened to her. And they all sort of, you know, it was a collective slapping of the foreheads. And they brought Harrison Ford and Karen Ellen back and filmed them on the steps of, I think, the San Francisco City Courthouse. So you get that Casablanca moment at the end where she comes down, he comes down the stairs. Where she's the one that's, you know, the audience needs to, you're, you're ripping them off. They want to know what happened to Marion. So she has this really good story sense. Um, you know, she helped them edit American Graffiti. She edited uh, a lot of uh, Empire Strikes Back. She edited a lot of uh, Jedi. At that point, their marriage was fracturing. And Luke sort of derisively said that she was editing the dying and crying sequences. But, uh, but you know, she had edited Yoda's death, for example, is one of the scenes that she edited. So she's a really, really fantastic editor. And a lot of Lucas's friends talked about how great looking she was and said that he really wasn't punching his weight <laughs> when it came to her, uh, that every guy wanted Marsha Lucas. But they, everyone to a person talked about what a spectacularly gifted editor she was. Well, that's one of the things that I was always so surprised about when I found out about it was just the amount of talented people that Lucas would surround himself with and was friends with. You know, Lucas is one of these guys who, if you're friends with Lucas, you're friends with him for life. You know, the, somebody even says that the only friends he ever made, you know, that he ever had were the ones he made at USC, and that was enough for him. But, uh, but I mean, look at the batch of friends that he had at USC. You know, people like John Milius and Randall Kleiser and uh, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz and, you know, Walter Murch, all these, you know, really fantastic and gifted filmmakers and screenwriters and cinematographers and, and you know, sound editors. So it, it was a really good bunch. John Milius said he called their class the class the stars fell on, which was a, a West Point reference. Lucas was, you know, he's not necessarily a fantastic collaborator per se because he really likes to control things. But he does know how to bring in the right people, which is at least a big part of it. He's not always necessarily content to sort of light fuse and stand back. I think the only person he's content to do that with is Spielberg. But, you know, he, he does know, for example, when he, when he gets ready to make something like Empire Strikes Back, that he probably needs a director who's a little bit better with actors than he is. So he brings in Irvin Kershner, who's a an actor's director and really is willing to give actors the time they need to ad lib and find their characters and find their motivations, which is something Lucas as a director just is not interested in. Read the lines on the damn page. No ad libbing. I don't need you to get method. Just read the lines. Uh, Irvin Kirshner is willing to let them explore those characters. And because of that, that's where you get fantastic ad libs like Harrison Ford saying, I know when Princess Leia says, I love you. That's an ad lib that Kirshner indulges. 
Um, you know, Lucas doesn't have time for that. But what happens, unfortunately, is is because Kirshner's doing things like that, that movie's starting to run over budget behind schedule. And uh, and Lucas really gets on Gary Kurtz for that. That's sort of the beginning of the end of that relationship there, he and Kurtz. But the point is, Lucas is great at knowing when he needs help. Uh, he does it in THX. He does it in American Graffiti. You know, he knows the script for American Graffiti needs help. For example, he brings in Gloria Katz and, and Willard Hayek to help punch up that script. They do it in Star Wars. You know, he says, I have dialogue problems. You guys can punch up the dialogue. He brings them in to write the dialogue. So he's so he, he knows when he needs help. He's not afraid to ask for help. Uh, American Graffiti, for example, he does it with um, uh, with Haskell Wexler uh, to, for a cinematographer. He says, I'm, I can't light this thing. I'm having a hell of a time. My rushes are coming back muddy. What's going on? And, and you know, somebody like Haskell Wexler looks and says, well, you've got lighting problems. Let me light this for you and I'll come out and work all night with you and help you shoot this. Very generous of Haskell Wexler. But again, Lucas wasn't afraid to ask. So that is, that is one of his talents on that. Even though he may make people miserable by just standing over them, he's at least not afraid to ask. So the book comes out December 2016. When did you finally put it to bed? First draft was turned in March of 16. And then after the first round of edits, when we finally got done with the last period on it was July of 2015, which is why I had at that moment what was almost up to the last minute information on how his uh, museum proposal was going, which we finally got closure on, I think, last week. Um, but so, the, so July of 15 was the very last time I was able to insert anything into it. So it's been about at the time of this recording. July 16. No, it was that fast. It was March of 16 and July of 16. It was all very, very rushed at the end. Being so close to a subject for so long, when do you think you're going to be able to enjoy watching George Lucas's films again? I think I can, as it is anyway. You know, I, I, I was very lucky with that as with, you know, Jim Henson. I got to go back and watch them. And you get to watch them with new eyes. And you get to watch George Lucas movies with new eyes. I, I don't think knowing what you know uh, takes away any of the pleasure of watching movies. In fact, I think it even makes it a little more fun. Um, I try not to be the annoying guy who's sitting next to you while you're watching. He's going, let me tell you a story about what happened here at this point. And, you know, watch this part here. This is great. Let me tell you the story. So I, so I try not to do that. That's probably uh, the biggest problem I've had is it makes me that guy to everybody else when the movies are playing. I think I would kind of like you to be that guy, though. Fortunately, with something like Star Wars, most of us have seen it 10,000 times. So you can tell the stories and no one's missing anything. But the uh, could you come over and narrate Howard the Duck for me sometime? Oh my gosh, oh boy. You gotta admire Howard the Duck regardless. You know, it's again, it's one of those it's hard is kind of in the right place. You know, once again, he's trying to advance the ball. This is a comic that he loves, that he's handing off to, you know, his friends saying, you should write something on this. Steve Gerber's hilarious. Howard the Duck is hilarious. It's this great satire. Steve Gerber is like, you know, th this guy who's like the big F you to the comic industry. That's the way we are to the movie industry. And they just can't execute it, you know? And it's and it was one of those things like they wanted Howard to be their big reveal. And they were sort of keeping it secret what Howard looked like. And then when you finally saw him in the movie, you were hugely disappointed and a little creeped out with how Howard looked on screen. But, but it's one of those where, like, his, I mean, his, his heart's in the right place. He really wants that wow factor, and they just can't execute. Um, you know, could they do it nowadays with CG, you know, CGI? Who knows? If you made the exact same movie with CGI technology now, would it be way better? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's something we can all probably debate. You know, you watch some stuff, you know, something like um, Red Tails, for example. That's a movie that's got its heart in the right place, and it's just, you know, the... Like you've got LALM doing the special effects and they're just atrociously bad. So that's another one. They just can't execute well. Well, yeah, that's the thing that I don't understand that the 
special effects in 1977 and 1980 and 1983 even can look so much better than the special effects in 1997, 2000, 2003. It's like, what? Yeah. Hand, handmade counts for a lot. And I think, and, you know, and, and I think that's one of the reasons something like THX still is really interesting. Such a junk word. And I apologize for using it, but it's like, it's still, I think this reason even the THX one with three, is still such an interesting film to watch because, you know, everything exists. There's really no special effects going on that. Lucas is doing what he does really well, especially in his career, which is like he's going out on location and he's dressing his sets in this way that like you can't quite tell it like is somewhat familiar, but you can't really tell where you are. And, you know, it's that same sort of used universe aesthetic he brings to Star Wars. He even sort of has that in THX. You know, he's filming he's filming in, you know, in the in the subway. He's filming in the BART. And he's filming out at airports when he does the student film and thing. And it just there's something about it. you're watching it. You're like this. I know what this is, but yet it's still off. And I think that's one of the strengths of him, especially in those early days, is you know he he really has this ability to get his vision up there. I mean, it, it looks like nothing else. So when you see something like THX, you know the world is white and washed out, and it's you know it doesn't it doesn't look like what you're used to, and it's you know you've got robot guards with these impassive Westworld esque kind of faces to them, and it's just it, it, it's a it's a odd looking place, but it's Lucas just using the here and now to do the job for him. There's no you know really exotic costuming or anything like that going on. Having people shave their heads. You know, that is a decision that gives that world that that film a real otherworldliness, even though it's supposed to be here on Earth. Um, but it gives us it gives us this very foreign feel just by that decision alone. So, there, I mean, Lucas really has a knack of figuring out how to make, you know, make take take something and make that exists and make it work for him. And I think that, you know, for example, I'm going to go back to one of my previous subjects. Jim Henson, you look at something like Dark Crystal, everything you see in Dark Crystal is built. And, you know, Lucas is doing that in Star Wars and Empire. Everything you see on screen for the most part is built, even if it's a model, you know, for a spaceship. But it's, it's at least built. There's no, you know, you can't cheat it. You can't CGI it. You can't do things like that. And I think that's why we look at something like the 77 Star Wars. And uh, it just looked like nothing else. And partly it's because everything was built and he was on sets that actually existed. And it was worlds that looked tangible because they actually were. Even the simple things like the white sets and thx that just kind of go off into infinity it's so simple but so effective yeah and i mean imagine how tough that was to light and and you know and you know how the whites wash out and they burn the cameras i mean it must have just been brutal for them to light and you see pictures of lucas working on set for that like you know everybody's got their shoes off because you don't want to scuff that floor and ruin the effect at all so you know he's, he's really controlling that environment which you're filming so he can get that look down and, you know, that's testament to him as a filmmaker, even at 27. He, like, he knows what he wants this to look like, it, and it's going to be tough, and lighting's going to be hard, but damn it, this is what it's going to look like. So you said that the reviews so far have been good, which I'm really glad for because it deserves so much praise. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad people like it. There's been a lot of stuff written, but to your point, you do bring it all together. And just to show all of the pies that he has had his fingers in over the years. That's the thing that I just don't think that a lot of people realize. And so I'm really glad that you're bringing that to light. Yeah, and I'll tell you the one thing that I found fascinating, and, and this is one that when I'm talking about this, it really gets me amped up, is um, something like the THX sound system. I First of all, I before this started, I thought THX was the speakers. 
like at home, I was like, oh, I have my THX system. And so, so I have my six speakers that I put around the room. That's not what it was at all. I didn't realize that it was a series of specifications, the way you would align speakers and the way you could, you know, adapt the architecture in, a, in your movie theater. So it sounded great. But, but, you know, what I love about THX is this, again, goes to the sheer audacity of George Lucas on getting it up on the screen. I'm getting it to look and sound the way the artist wants it to look and sound. Because by the time a movie leaves production, by the time it leaves the studio or Skywalker Ranch, wherever you're editing it, you put it together and send it out there. And that should really be the end of it. But Lucas, and this this is he, he's just finished Return of the Jedi, and he uh, he doesn't like the way the movie sounds when he gets in the theater. He loves the way it sounds in his in his editing room there at Skywalker, and he doesn't know why it sounds so terrible when he gets into the theaters. And Tom Holman, his sound guy, says, "Well, it's because I have the set of specifications I use in our little theater here in Skywalker. It has to do with the placement of the theater and even the candle rate at which the film is projected." And so he's got this whole series of specifications. Lucas goes out to the theaters and says, "I want you to reconfigure your." your theaters to meet the set of specifications. How, how ballsy is that? I mean, that's a part of the process. He should have no say over. It has left the building. It's in the hands of the theater. He shouldn't be able to reach into the theater and do that. But what he tells them is, look, my movie sounds great here. It doesn't sound great when you get your theater. I want it to sound great. If you want it to sound great, you should take these specifications, which you can pay me for and, uh, a lot, you know, rebuild, reconfigure your theater by that. And by the way, I've got Return of the Jedi edited in THX, so if you reconfigure your theater in THX, Jedi is going to sound awesome. So, so like he's wielding his powers for good in a way. You know, he's saying, "Look, if you want you if you want to do this, THX is is custom made for this." He does it again with Attack of the Clones. When that comes out, it's completely CGI. It's completely digital. Theaters aren't digital yet, and Lucas says, "Look, you know, I would love for you guys to start upgrading to digital projectors and DVD systems, to, so you can." And I actually have a movie. It's called Star Wars Episode Two. That's done digitally. So if you want to show it digitally, I've got a movie for you to show. Once again, using his powers for good. You know, wielding Star Wars as a club, but for good. So that that's one of the bits I I just love is with THX. I just had I had no idea exactly what it was, but just again the audacity of poking his finger into a pie, to use your metaphor, that he really had no right to even stick his finger into in the first place. That's in the, that's in the theater. That's completely out of his jurisdiction. And I just have to point out to the audience just the the strange coincidence, because you say, what, his, his sound guys who, Tom Holman? Tom Holman, yep. So the TH of the THX. Is Tom Holman, and the X, there, there, there's two different stories on it. One is it's the Tom Holman experiment, and the other one is it's the Tom Holman crossover, which meant you were crossing your channels instead of instead of breaking apart, you know, putting one in one speaker, one in the other. You would actually remove them between. You were crossing them over. So they were calling it THX. So it's incredibly serendipitous that you get that nice little callback to uh, Lucas's student film and first film, which is something that shows up in every single Lucas film, you know, ever. So that was just one of those things when I found that out, I was like. Oh shit! I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, how cool! Yeah, how cool is that? Because I, I actually, I mean, I thought THX was they were they were like, oh, this is a tribute to my student film THX. <laughs> I didn't know there was a Tom Holman. I am really glad that you've done this work. It is, like I said, it's remarkable. So so good, and I really recommend this because, again, I thought that I knew all that there was to know. You know, I've read Skywalking. I've I've listened to books about Star Wars, which have covered the whole history. I thought of George Lucas, but this really just takes it 
to a completely different level. I know that's it's so trite to say, but it really does. I mean, and, and it's no it's no small feat either. I mean, this book clocks in at what five hundred and sixty some pages, so it's not like you're you're just going to be able to pick this up for a weekend either. Yeah, well, and again, I I appreciate that, and you know, it's one of those again. I, I always say I, I despaired of ever finishing it, and it, initially, my you know, my first my contract for it was the the length was supposed to be. I think 120,000 words or something, which is like 350 pages. And I called my editor one day and I said, I think I'm at 180,000 words already. And I, (laughs) and, and he was great. He goes, he goes, you know what? It takes what it takes. You know, he's he's like, this is a great story. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to start cutting it just because we need to start worrying about page count. So I appreciate all the readers who uh, enjoy it and have hung in there with it, including you uh, for all 560 pages of it. Plus I think there's another 45 or 50 pages of end notes and indexing and so on going on. So, uh, so I appreciate everybody who sticks with it. I know that, uh, I know it's a big book, but I, uh, I, I think we told the story, uh, I hope in a way that is entertaining for people to read and, uh, doesn't send them, doesn't send them, doesn't put them to sleep and send them to bed bored. So it sounds like the next one is just going to be another matter of serendipity as far as, okay, this strikes my interest, or I've never thought about this or any of these other things that have helped you bring Washington Irving and the Jim Henson book and now the George Lucas book to fruition? Or have you already had that moment? I actually have had a, a good conversation with my agent editor about about the next subject because it's, you know, it's one of those, it's, you know, after you finish somebody like Jim Henson, when you get ready to take on the next one, you're you're trying to find something that almost feels worthy of Jim Henson. You know, it's one of those, it's like, well, that was a, that was a good subject. You, you've got to do somebody that feels right for that one as well. I kept joking that my next one I've done, I've done a writer, I've done a TV guy and I've done a movie guy. So now I need to do musician. And I was actually saying that my niche seems to be, somebody said my niche is mad geniuses, which I really love. And I always said that it's, that it's enigmatic pop culture icons. And if you're going to do music, the only one left I think is Ringo, but I think somebody's doing Ringo now. So, so it can't be Ringo, which was my disappointment because I'm a Beatles nerd, but uh, Ringo, uh, if anyone's doing Ringo, it's not going to be me. going to hear from screenwriter Matthew Wilder, who penned the original story for Electronic Labyrinth, THX 1138, for EB. I hope I can be helpful on the um, THX stuff. Have you seen the student film version of it, beside the feature film version? Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I know there's a Michigan connection there with it uh, winning uh, at the Ann Arbor Film Festival all those years ago. Did it? God, that's something I probably knew but have forgotten. Here's what I can remember: just that well, we were all in school, and um, part of the um, film department was made up of, um, I believe it was Navy people. They had a um, a number of uh, people who were in the Navy, 
who were doing film studies because they were going to be doing uh, film projects uh, as part of their service. And uh, so the Navy was sending them uh, to USC to learn, you know, the techniques of camera and editing and lighting, that sort of thing. George, uh, who was always very uh, shrewd about these things, saw a resource in that these guys had access uh, to cameras and equipment and uh, raw stock. <laughs> it was an odd thing. Uh, everyone got along very well, but, you know, we were in the 60s and the uh, storm clouds of Vietnam were really getting pretty heavy. And uh, a lot of anti-war sentiment among the bohemian film students, but there we were side by side with a pretty big contention of guys who were in the Navy. <laughs> but uh, it was perfectly amiable, just odd sociologically. And George uh, hung out with these guys, and uh, that's how he made the student version of uh, THX 1138EB. You know that EB stands for Earthborn? Anyway, uh, he had it in mind to do it sort of as a camera exercise, a storytelling camera exercise. We were always being given exercises to do uh, at film school. And uh, uh, whenever possible, uh, uh, a few of us would try to make up a story, tell a story with the camera exercise, you know, to demonstrate not only that we were taking on board what they were teaching us about uh, you know, composition and lighting and all, all the technical things, um, but get into the narrative as well. I forget whose party it was, but George came up to me at a party and said, "Why don't I want to do this thing about a dystopian future, <laughs> you know, just a short film. Uh, and he described uh, the world of THX and this guy on the run from, you know, the authorities. And so I wrote it for him. It was uh, just, you know, a couple of pages based on what we talked about at that party. He took those pages and it was, it wasn't really a, it was more of a treatment rather than a, it was, yeah, of course there was no dialogue, sort of a description of this guy running down corridors and um, cameras following him and video images. And, and he seemed happy with it. And he went, I wasn't around for the shooting. I was doing my own student thing. And, None of us knew, including George, that he was George. <laughs> he was just another film student. And, um, but he really made a great little movie and it did win prizes and got him a lot of attention. Um, eventually became the basis of his, um, debut uh, feature at Warner Brothers. The funny thing is about that, um, whole episode is that many, many years later, I was cleaning out my basement. There's all kinds of stuff down there and, folders and junk and I found those original two or three pages <laughs> and I gave them to him he was just amazed he accused me of being a pack rat I had no excuse for it. I didn't you know because I'm not a pack rat and normally I would lose everything but it's just a weird there they were in the bottom of a shoebox or something those few pages of that of that movie I remember uh, the feature film version there was a terrible struggle, um, and when he was finishing the feature version at Warner Bros., he was the first of us to get a job in Hollywood. We were all amazed. Um, Francis, it was at, uh, Francis Coppola had come out of UCLA, and he had started working right away, and he and George are very close, still are. And um, Francis made an overall deal, at, uh, it was then called Warner Brothers Seven Arts, and George made his first feature based on THX. And um, Walter Murch and uh, George wrote that feature screenplay. 
So uh, uh, Walter, unfortunately, is in London, so it's not that easy to get in touch with him. But the Warner Brothers executives really uh, didn't understand anything about the movie. It was way too far out as it was, you know, they just uh, were very traditional guys. And we were part of a youth movement that was, you know, controversial anyway because of anti-war activity and, you know, the new generation. There was not really a new Hollywood yet. You know, it was just a borning. George shot it in Technoscope. I think 16 millimeter cameras, but with a funny, uh, super wide format with a half frame pull down. So it, it was a cheap way of getting a cinemascope or something close to a cinemascope ratio, like a 235 ratio. And, uh, you know, it had all this weird costumes and bald people and, <laughs> and he shot, uh, Robert Duval. I was there for that part of the, sh- he was, he shot some love scenes with Maggie McOney. Cause we had all gotten jobs at, um, uh, a commercials house in, in Hollywood, uh, and he shot part of it on our soundstage at that commercials house. Um, it was a, a commercial company that Haskell Wexler was a partner in. So we went and saw George shooting part of his feature where we'd all been, we'd all had jobs there in editorial and, you know, various production jobs. It was a way of us earning money while we were in school. Anyway, the, the story is that, uh, they wanted to recut the movie and, uh, George had these creatures at the end. He called them shell dwellers. <laughs> this is so funny today. I can't help laughing. <laughs> and they lived in the, they were like, they were going to be like the Ewoks or something. They were like these, you know, little people <laughs> living in the pipes. And the plumbing of the ceilings of the upper layers of this underground city. I mean, it's like comic book stuff, but we had such fun cooking this stuff up. <laughs> and they came and they, had, I think, as I recall, this is pretty hazy stuff. It's so many years ago. They were attacking Bobby Duval at the end. He had to run away from them or something like that. I don't remember if it's in the movie or not. There's this kind of skirmish of some kind near the end. And... What the studio wanted to do was to start the movie with that. You know, it made no sense at all in terms of the story, but it was excitement. They wanted to kick the movie off with some kind of excitement. And they said, they said to George, we want to put the freaks up front. That was the expression they used. <laughs> it was just, it was hilarious, but it wasn't hilarious at the time. We were really worried and scared. All of us, you know, we were like a gang. He showed the movie to the executives at Warner Brothers and we took him to the studio to, for that screening, and then we didn't leave the lot. I'm, when I say we, I mean me and Merch and Caleb Deschanel, as I recall. And we sat down under the water tower. <laughs> there's lot, you know, there's a big W on the water tower. And we, we were seated within sight of the projection booth. You know, the project, the, the, we were near the back of the theater. We could see where the projectionist would be coming and going. And, it was our job to figure out a way to take the work print and get it into our car and take off with it uh, before the studio could the work print. <laughs> I believe we managed to do it. I think we did, you know, to protect George's cut. <laughs> we were just like college kids, you know. I mean, it was like somebody had made a mistake and led us onto the studio lot. It's how it felt. I, I wonder if maybe Caleb or Walter could fill in some gaps on that but anyway that's the atmosphere of it and um they treated him very badly um george he never forgot it it did uh 
a lot to steer him to what became pretty well known about his reaction, his feelings about Hollywood. It's what happened on that movie. He 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 was quoted as a pretty well known quote about if they kidnap your child and cut off her finger and then they give her back to you and they say, well, what's your problem? She only lost one finger. For God's sake, shut up. You know, calm down. That goes right back to uh, their feelings about uh, his feelings about what what Warner Brothers. Uh, was doing with THX, and uh, he decided that it was an art film, you know, it would never be understood by American moviegoers, and so his next movie was um, American Graffiti, which is all America, you know, all the time, you know, much more familiar territory in terms of music and culture and all the rest of it. Tell me about your role in THX 1138, because... Right, right, right. <laughs> role such as... He didn't have a last shot, so we went and did it for him. He couldn't even come along. It took a long time to get that shot, because we, we had um, arranged... Uh, Caleb got hold of a lens for the Araflex. It was, this, it was a big box. It was like four feet long. Super, super long telephoto lens, like 2,000 millimeter lens. We went out to um, Zuma Beach or one of those beaches way out, you know, northwest L.A., you know, way out there. Pismo Beach or Zuma Beach. God, I forget which one. If my wife were here, she could tell me. And I had the I had Bobby DeVal's costume and a bald cap. You know, I put it on. I had long hair and I put this cap on. I had a walkie-talkie. It was only me and oh. I think Walt and Caleb again, just the three of us. And... Um, I had a VW bus, which was <laughs> needed because this lens was so big, it would barely fit in the car. It was like a huge thing. We had to go and figure out where the sun went down and mark it and then mark the camera position. And then we had to go day after day because every afternoon we went out there to do this shot, the fog would roll in and we couldn't see the sun. You know, it really it took forever to get out there and hang around. And then finally, we had a clear evening. Hey, it's clear. Go out out there. So I had to run all the way like, you know, quarter of a mile away and just crouched down behind the dune with my walkie-talkie and and uh, Caleb was uh, looking through the eyepiece of his camera and then he said, okay, okay, you know, we're rolling, we're all right, all right, guys, stand up. <laughs> that, was the, that was the shot. <laughs> so I stood up and looked, you know, baffled and the sun went down and then there was some guys, some uh, guys on the beaches. Saw me. This guy came running up. He said, "What are you, a monster?" <laughs> I had this cap on. You know, just, I, you know, I pointed all the way back. There was a camera. You, you couldn't even see it. It was so far away. Yeah, that was the last shot of the movie. That's me. We all in those days. We all worked on each other's movies. It was really we were just having a lot of fun. It wasn't it really wasn't quite serious. <laughs> Well, I know you went to uh, John Hopkins and um, also Walter Murch went there. Can you do you remember what was it like the first time that you met him, and how did you guys become friends? Not only uh, did Walter and I go there, but the uh, following year, uh, Caleb came. So Caleb Deschanel and Walter and I were all at Hopkins together, and I met him uh, at uh, what the I don't know they still do freshman orientation. You had to go a week early. To get acquainted with the, in, in, in Hopkins, it was with the um, city of Baltimore and uh, the campus, and uh, to get a feel for uh, what life was going to be like in the dorms, because you had to live in the dorms uh, your first year. And so we met uh, right away. And he was from uh, Manhattan, and I was from Long Island, and uh, we uh, basically we were 18, 
still very close friends today, Caleb too. We got interested in movies. Walter and I became roommates uh, second year. And Walter's, Walter's father turned out to be a very, very interesting man who was a great Canadian painter. I don't know if you could look that up, but if you do so, Google Images, and, uh, many of his paintings, a remarkable painter. He was best friends with all those abstract expressionists in the uh, 40s and 50s and early 60s, but he did not paint abstract expressionist paintings. He painted uh, still life, but very, I, I, it's hard to describe, they're very poetic and very um, uh, beautiful, very beautiful paintings. George became the major collector of uh, Walter Murch senior paintings. And my, my, my brother, who um, was quite a bit older than I am, uh, was a um, museum curator in New York at the Guggenheim Museum. And when he heard that I had a friend named, a new friend named Walter Murch, his ears shot up. He said, what are you talking about? That's not possible. Walter Murch is a very great Canadian painter. And we found out about his father. And then my family became very friendly with the Murch family family, and my brother uh, organized a retrospective of um, Walter Murcher Sr.'s work prior to his death. It was a very interesting connection between my family and the Murch family, and the um, it's owing to the fact that his father um, was uh, such a, a remarkable uh, and unique talent. Uh, it's, worth, it's worth your time uh, if you have any interest in, I mean, a lot of people are interested in Walter Murch because of his wide-ranging interests and books and uh, career, uh, but uh, his father was uh, an exceptional presence anyway, kind of like Robert De Niro Sr., a different style of painter altogether, but Robert De Niro Sr., you may know that his father was a, was a pretty well-known painter in uh, New York in the same era. Anyway, uh, yeah, Walter and I became uh, roommates, and we... We're taking a lot of foreign language courses in the Romance Language Department at Johns Hopkins and wound up going to Paris for our junior year. Uh, and in Paris, um, then, as now, there's a tremendous interest in movies in general and American film in particular. In addition to being enrolled at the Sorbonne and studying 19th, in my case, 18th and 19th century French literature, we went to the movies a lot. They were largely American movies. And they were visiting American filmmakers who came and lectured. And it was, you know, very, like now, you know, France takes movies very seriously. A lot of excitement about movies. And we kind of caught that bug. And when we returned to Johns Hopkins, we twisted a few arms to get them to organize a uh, seminar on film. And a very distinguished professor there agreed to it. And we convened, uh, there were only about six of us in the seminar, so we could convene in his office uh, once or twice a week. And we published a little magazine, you know, criticism. And, and that was, by then, our senior year. We had done our junior year uh, in Paris. Walter Walter and I, you know, Walter and I were roommates through, um, I mean, not freshman year, but all the, re- the other three years at Hopkins. I was best man at his wedding. He was best man at my wedding. We both married English women. And, uh, anyway, we, we applied to and were both accepted at uh, USC School of Cinema, and neither of us had ever been to California. After that first year, Caleb got in touch with us. What's it like? And we said, you know, come here, come here. It's fun. <laughs> and we already met George and a number of the other um, USC uh, students of that era, like John Milius and Randall Kleiser. And so 
Caleb came out the following year, and uh, he moved into a room literally next door to me, uh, right near the campus. So he and I were sort of de facto roommate for a couple of years. That's my reminiscence. <laughs> Can you tell me, how did you and uh, Hal Barwood meet? Well, uh, Hal was a star uh, when I got there. He had gone to um, Brown University and got interested in graphic design and animation. He was a star in the animation department. He had made a couple of animated shorts, which were prize winners, and they were remarkable, really inventive, totally original uh, and handcrafted. Uh, and they weren't drawn; they were they were sort of cut out animations with cut out cell. They were they were they were painted cells that he did, but um, they are moved um, under the animation stand by hand with with uh, transparent cutouts that had been painted. You know, if you can, if that makes sense, he. And I spent a lot of time together. He and I were both working at a little production house uh, in um, Hollywood that made educational films. That uh, was headed up by one of the professors, uh, one of the one of the uh, teachers at the school had a um, uh, an educational industrial film outfit that did very creative work. Not at all the boring documentary style, but much more inventive, charming, and. He hired a number of us. Uh, there's a, we all needed work. Everybody needed money. And so those little um, independent film companies in Hollywood supplied uh, some income when we were you know, sort of transitioning out of school and getting work. And so Hal and I uh, spent a lot of time there uh, talking. John Milius got an agent. In those days, the agency was called ICM. And there was a uh, young fellow named Jeff Bird who... Uh, had been an English major at Cal up here in Northern California. He was from a show business family. His father was a producer in L.A. And he had become a sort of a junior agent at International Creative Management. He convinced the management there that he could get some film students as clients and it might lead to something. And John John was a, a, a you know, very flamboyant character, as you may know. And he attracted a lot of attention and got an agent, and he told this guy, Jeff Berg, who was later to become the president of the entire agency, um, about Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins. He took me to lunch. I couldn't really believe it. You know, I, an agent was something you heard about in movies about show business, where they, you know, it, it was, but he said, no, what do you guys want to do? And I introduced him to Hal, and Hal and I had talked about writing some movies. He said, well, why don't you write those movies? I'll get you paid. And what he was thinking about was um, that Francis had this deal. Francis uh, had already uh, established himself in Hollywood. He was uh, he had directed uh, his movie for Roger Corman, was uh, writing Patton, and uh, you know he was he was really on the move. He had made a an overall deal with Warner's Seven Arts to uh, become a little entity of low-budget movies. And Hal and I, um, our very first job for Guild Minimum, which is, I think, for all of $5,000 or something, split in half. <laughs> we wrote a screenplay and uh, started working together that way. And we kind of taught ourselves how to write. It was, uh, we weren't really sure what we were doing before anything could happen with that movie and many of the other films, I think there was a change in management and Francis's deal ended and the, and the whole thing kind of evaporated. I don't remember the history well enough all these years later. I'm still very much in touch with Francis too, by the way. We don't really talk about this stuff anymore. <laughs> 
can you tell me how did you guys end up uh, writing Sugarland Express? Our partnership, um, which started out under Francis's aegis, going, and we had one or two screenplays written by then, and the agency was showing these scripts around, and and um, I guess Stephen heard about us as a team of new writers from our, the same generation. He was a guy who had been directing television at Universal, and none of us knew him that well. He'd gone to Long Beach State. There were a lot of suspicion and laughter about Stephen in those days because he was this guy our age, but he drove a little green Mercedes. <laughs> it's like he drove a car that your parents would have. <laughs> and we, we used to laugh about that. But that was Stephen, and he was full of ideas, and he had uh, stumbled across a news item which was the basis of Sugarland Express. And he showed it to Hal and me, and we got excited. We thought it would make a great movie. And he brought us up to um, uh, an office in the Black Tower at Universal to um, pitch it to Jennings Lang, who was a senior executive there at the time. Jennings Lang was worth looking up to. He was an agent uh, in the 40s and the 50s in Hollywood, you know, really another generation entirely. But... A uh, very sweet man, and um, he listened to us for, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes, and before we even finished, he picked up the phone and booked us three tickets to um, Texas to do some research. And we went down to uh, Houston and rode, Stephen and, and Hal Barwood and I rode around for a few nights with the highway patrol, gathering information on the ways and the uh, the whole culture of the Highway Patrol and Texas uh, policing practices. And we met uh, the actual guy who um, was hijacked, uh, the officer who lost control of his gun and his car to this young couple. And uh, we talked to him and um, came back and uh, uh, laid out the screenplay and wrote it wrote it uh, fairly quickly, as it turns out. And uh, uh, then uh, uh, Dick Zanuck uh, and David Brown were the producers. They um, had a relationship with Goldie Hawn, and they brought her on board with the movie. They became the actual producers. Um, Jennings, who had developed it, stepped aside, and uh, uh, Dick Zanuck and David Brown were the producers on that movie. And we, Hal and I did not go to Texas during the shoot. We were kept, deliberately kept at bay. <laughs> Dick Zanuck didn't believe that, uh, all you kids shouldn't spend too much time together. It was, it was, he, he really was like a teacher. And, and, uh, so Stephen would call during the production and all excited and, uh, it was, it was, uh, a long distance kind of, uh, relationship. And then, Something I do get asked about on that movie is um, the fact that it won Best Screenplay at the Cannes Film Festival. I spend half my year in France. I have a place over there. And uh, so this comes up uh, in my life even now, all these years later, because the Cannes Festival is uh, a very big deal there, as you know. My story about that is that um, Hal and I were, of course, long since working on other stuff, and uh, had moved on, and we didn't even know that uh, the film had been entered in the Cannes Festival. Nobody told us. I got a phone call from Walter Murch. It was around 5 in the morning, which is 2 in the afternoon in Cannes. He was at the festival with Francis. I think he had, what it was, the, the conversation, or one of Francis's movies was that year, 70. And they announced from the stage, 
that screenplay, uh, Hal Bar with Matthew Robbins. Are you here, gentlemen? <laughs> and so Walter stood up and he, and I, of course, we speak French because we studied there and he went up and <laughs> graciously accepted the award for, for Hal and me. I was just interviewed about this. Uh, I was, I was just in France a few weeks ago and I was, on a there's a channel there called the Paramount Channel, and they want to know about Sugarland Express, and they asked me about this incident, which is why I can retrieve it for you in this fashion because I just told this anecdote, and they wanted to know in France if winning the best screenplay on Sugarland was a big change in our career, and the answer is, of course not. <laughs> it made absolutely no difference whatsoever. It just doesn't mean the same thing in this country. It means a little more nowadays. But back in the 70s, the Cannes Festival was like, it was just like an exotic blip. They sent us a, a big certificate, which is somewhere in storage. Anyway, that was, that was, that was my, um, how, how that came about with, uh, Stephen. But uh, that's not dystopian. That's not a part of your podcast. I don't know how you're going to use all that stuff. Next up, we're going to hear from actress Maggie McComey about her work on THX 1138. How did you come to be cast in THX 1138? I was living in the city. I was finishing my uh, BA in theater arts at uh, San Francisco State College at a time when um, every Friday they were uh, there would be a group of people handing out psychedelic rock concert posters that are now <laughs> very prized. I was renting an apartment for $65 a month. Uh, I could ride the cable car for a 25 cent transfer. Uh, now cable cars are exclusively used for tourists. Then it was part of the Muni system. And, and the corner market from my apartment, I could, uh, buy Dungeness Crab for 75 cents a pound. San Francisco is, um, at that time, and I, I think they still do because there wasn't much land left to, build large supermarkets. So it still has a lot of corner markets. But my great-grandmother was born in San Francisco in 1864. So my roots kind of run deep in the city. And it was special for me to be cast in San Francisco for George Lucas's first feature film. But getting back to how I was cast, I was an ensemble member of a production of Marat Saad that was... Uh, at this Interplayers Theater down on Bay Street, a few doors down from the famous Buena Vista Cafe. So one night, after the performance, uh, our director, he, he announced, he said, well, there's these Hollywood people, and they're going to they're gonna use our theater to uh, interview actors, and they just want to look at faces. Uh, so there was some groaning, oh, Hollywood, oh, Hollywood. But they all showed up like I did. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so from there, um, they asked me to come back uh, for uh, another interview or a, a filming. I was actually filmed. I, I went back two or three times, I guess, um, before I was finally cast. 
This was after another actress refused to shave her head, and I was absolutely thrilled to be cast. I knew my hair would grow back, and they chose uh, the setting for this shaving, uh, the Palace of Fine Arts was a lovely place for this to happen. It's on that, uh, there was a little short film on that um, CD that it accompanied, yeah, they had a little short film of the shaving the head. But it it was it was fine, you know, and <laughs> after I started, I, I was getting a, a stubble on my head after being shaved. Coppola called me a sea scout. <laughs> he said I look like a sea scout. So that's that's how I came to be cast. I was living in the city, and this was, I think, 1969. Warner Brothers, they were not too keen on the movie. They thought it was a disaster, I guess, from what I understand. Uh, wanted a lot of changes. They delayed the release of the film by almost two years, I think. I don't think it was released until 1971, and um, the film was completed in, in 1969. So then, when it was finally released, it didn't. Oh, it didn't really take off. And it just was a precursor to a lot of, well, certainly to Star Wars, but then so many other science fiction films. Although there, there certainly had been some science fiction films before that. It was more the film itself. And they called it bleak, which in a way it was, but I think it's become a cult film because there's these little bits of humor in it that one can catch. For example, the object, many-sided object that Robert Duvall's character of THX, the title character, picked up and he put into a slot on the wall or something like that. You hear this swoosh. It was a little joke. This was excess and uh, materialism, to, uh, and so it, it's disposable, and it was put in um, the wall. And then, then, of course, there was the voice, are you happy? <laughs> are, are you, how are you feeling? <laughs> and and uh, looking in the mirror and, and so forth. But, and then... And then the scene was uh, the hallway with all the people running around back and forth and then the, the characters in the big white vastness that was filmed in a huge uh, studio hangar, you might say, in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, the lizard and the computer, that kind of thing. So, so yes, there were those little bits of humor. That and well, and then of course, uh, Lucas always likes car chases. He he grew up liking cars, and um, you know, that that was a kind of elemental. And and most of his films, if not all of them, you know, if it's space travel or hot rod travel or <laughs> going through tunnels at high speed. You spend almost all of your time on screen with Robert Duvall. What was he like to work with at that time? Well, he was wonderful. Um, we had a very good rapport, and so it was very easy. My my emotions and whatever were were apparent because it was just it was just an easiness working with him. He was he he's always very personable and funny um, off the screen. So it was very very nice, very pleasant. Your role is very emotionally intense, and I'm curious how you kind of prepared to portray Law. Well, I know I, um, I was thinking about that, and being that 
it was a science fiction and a kind of unknown territory, I guess, for an actor. You have to just draw on your own emotional state of being. But I figured, I imagined I was a woman coming off a, a steady regimen of drugs, becoming sentient and not tranquilized any longer. So there was a, uh, that flow of emotions. And it kind of, I guess it was easy for me to just display those emotions. You know, as far as preparation, it was just imagining that you're coming off drugs and you're not in a tranquilized state and you have your feelings are returning more most powerfully. Was there anything in the movie that that you remember being shot that didn't end up in the final film? No, I I think most of of what I most of the scenes that I um did uh were in the film. I can't think of any that that weren't when they finally released the movie, did they have a, a premiere? Did you guys get invited to, to come out and see the movie? No, no. There wasn't any premiere. No, it was just, uh, <laughs> you know, as I said, they, Warner Brothers was uh, not happy about the movie. And as George Lucas himself has said in interviews, so he, he said uh, it was bleak, and Francis uh, asked him to uh, make happier film, and then then he did American Graffiti after that. So they just didn't know what to do with it, but they did release it. Then it, I I can remember it showed up on a film festival in Los Angeles, uh, maybe ten years after the release of the film, and then it gradually gained audience uh, and became that what is now known as a cold film, I guess. We had a, a a celebration in New York for the the release of the CD or the DVD, excuse me, the two disc DVD with the the film on one and the the, the interviews with uh, with myself and and with uh, Duval and uh, other people that were involved in the film uh, and the short film about the, the haircutting and then of course the film about the, the San Francisco filmmakers. After THX was done, did you um, want to continue acting? And, and what was that next step for you like? Well, I did want to continue, but I had an agent, uh, and I went on a few interviews or auditions, and uh, nothing really came of it. There was, uh, I guess they didn't... I, I don't know how they could couldn't see me just as I was, you know, not, not as a science fiction character anymore. But it was difficult getting in to see people, and I was, uh, I, I kind of uh, dropped out. I had given birth to my daughter, so she was very, she was just a very young girl, and, and I just uh, kind of dropped out. I was uh, lacking ambition, in part. I think you're born to ambition if you're gonna, I was discouraged. And uh, rather than come back and uh, with more confidence, I just uh, allowed myself to raise my daughter. And from time to time, I got some work, some little small film. When I was still living in Los Angeles, I did do a few small things. I did small parts in some some films, and I did um, some other short films. And since moving to Portland, I've um, done some other small films too. I, I think you have to have an all-consuming passion to really succeed as an actor and not let 
yourself be discouraged. I read profiles of actors who who are at the top of their profession now. And, well, some of them just sort of fell into it by someone's suggestion. Others really knew from the time they were kids this is what they wanted to do. So that was it for me. You talked about doing a lot of shorts over the years. What have been some of your favorites to do? I did a film called War of the Grandmothers in Seattle about eight years ago. Um, that was fun. Myself and another woman, we were, we knew, we, the premise was we knew each other uh, years ago and one of us had stolen the other woman's husband or something. And then suddenly through our, our granddaughters, uh, we get reacquainted and uh, that was fun. I enjoyed that. That was in Seattle. And then the most recent one I did it was here in Portland where I I played the, the part of a a woman who is terminally ill and she and her husband decide they're going to cash out together. So they drink some cocoa laced with something that will do that. I enjoy doing that. And uh, people that worked on that film were very professional. And uh, the woman who wrote the script, uh, uh, it was uh, very knowledgeable about everything. And she just loved this little story. And she knew right away she wanted to cast me, so that was nice. I'm curious why the move to Portland. It comes down to grandchildren. They're a big lure. Yes, my, my grandson was, he's now 13, but he was only two when my daughter and her um, moved here. Then she had a, a, a girl, but now she's 10, the girl, and and he, and so... I see them frequently, and in the summertime, I do things with them because their mother works now full-time, and and um, they don't spend every day with their dad. So we travel together sometimes. We I, I take them to uh, museums and movies, restaurants, do things together. So that was it. I moved here to be near my daughter, and she was... Uh, finished a master's program in social work the last few years. And so uh, it was a big help getting, you know, I picked them up from school, stay with them in the afternoon. I guess I'm a full-time grandmother, but when the kids are 10 and 13, it's easier. And I wrote my happy songs. Every child made joy to you. What's wrong, Up next, we'll hear from Bruce Sheshi, who played the trial pontifex in THX 1138. Let me tell you how it, how we got the, the gig in the first place. My father and brother and I were all actors in the uh, little theater and in the professional theater in San Francisco. Also, we did uh, the Bremner agency that handled the casting for that uh, was a good friend. I worked with them at the Marin Shakespeare Festival with them. And uh, we were all interviewed together. Because we we uh, because we were related, but also we all sounded alike. That was one of the reasons why he cast us. We had similar voices, and then 
I was the Pontifax, which was the judge, and it was done at the UC Rad Lab. I think it was. It was a, sort of a TV studio. I was up on a huge ladder, and they just had a light on me. And then uh, at one point, George said, "I let's take a thing out of my ear, like I was wasn't hearing it, and shake it, and then put it back in my ear." And my father was the recording secretary, and my brother was the prosecuting uh, attorney. And then there was a uh, defense attorney who was another another kid. Yeah, we kept asking George when we were going to go, when he was going to rehearse it, and uh, he kept didn't put it on the schedule, and we were, we were getting really anxious. About it. And uh, he said, "No, no, no!" Or and then all of a sudden, boom! He sprang it on us, and we had to jump in and do it. And it really caught us by surprise. But one of the most interesting things about working in that show was that everybody was heads were shaved. We all had to to shave all our hair off. And I think that was one of the detriments uh, to the to the film because it 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 neutered everybody, so there wasn't anybody that you could identify with because we were all bald headed in, in white suits, so nobody really 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 stood out. And it used it was that was a time when the the preparatory agency had just started the agency and and just started doing it so everybody who is was on the film we shot most a lot of it at the uh at the marin the county marin county offices in the frank lloyd wright building in san rafael you know all we got we got a lot of work out of it because we would uh, and uh because they needed so many extras so we were working all the time and we worked in the in the scenes with both uh we were around donald pleasance was around and so was so was uh the lead guy was around and they were you know everybody was it was pretty in, in, informal you know he i didn't see him lucas really directing anybody he doesn't he, he really was more interested in the visual imagery than the, than the individual but it really was our 10 minutes of fame because i mean i can go online now and you know we weren't great principals I mean, we were called principals because we, we had a few lines but not a great deal but our name keeps cropping up every time you Google it. You Google it in China. You, I mean, you get our names are always there. Both my father and brother and I. And then we had a good friend named Don Pedro Colley, who was a black guy who played the played the um, one of the the uh, black prisoners in that. Uh, who also got performance. But there were there weren't a lot of uh, individuals, and that I thought it was really uh, ironic that all three of us got. You know, we're, we're really uh, singled out in that. It was also done, and also was right when they were doing BART. BART was the rapid transit system in San Francisco, and that's where they shot all the all the uh, car sequences. I mean, the, the underground underground stuff. And it was interesting. They did they they found a lot of different different locations, which were kind of interesting. The Rad Lab where we were at was up on top of uh, Berkeley and in the Berkeley Hills. And uh, we spent about about three or four days there uh, doing that. And uh, also, I they hit when you go and Google THX, they also have a short film that they did on the on everybody getting shaved. And, and I got there's a shot of me going and looking at call sheet there. And uh, my brother and I and father we, we looked rather similar, which was another that was one of the things, which is one of the reasons, but. but uh, and he chose us for that. We also all got interviews for American Graffiti and, and all that. And uh, they, they did, the candidate was shot around that time, later on that time. Which all, we always worked in all this because we were with the Brebner's 
this up a lot. And there were, that was a time when the pool wasn't, pool of actors wasn't very large. Now it's just humongous. You know, and that was one of the things that happened. It all became, it, when ACT opened, I, my brother and my sister-in-law and my father all were in the first production of ACT, American Claritin, did it, uh, on stage. And, and they used a lot of those guys in the show, too, from ACT. It was just, it was just a real uh, romp. Nobody, you know, we didn't know what we, you know, we didn't see any rushes or anything, so we didn't know what we were doing. And they, when they finally got it all edited, they had a big screening of it down the Palace of Fine Art. Duvall and, and Pleasance were really interesting, interesting guy to talk to. Very accessible. What was that screening like uh, the, when everybody finally got to see the, the final film? Oh, it was great. It was wonderful. I, had a, I mean, it was a, it was a big party. You know, that, that was a real, real nice thing. And, and uh, you know, all of our, everybody who was anybody in the, in the just in, a, in acting circles around there was in it because they used so many people. The women all got wigs after they shaved their heads and then they gave them wigs to wear during the day when they weren't working on it. <laughs> they were worried about their hair. And my, my nephew also, you know, he, as I told you, he, he uh, he did several films and edited them all at Skywalker Skywalker Ranch. So I so I was pretty much a part of that that kind of, that, uh, that place. I was sent a couple of weeks out there while they were editing uh, Finding Neverland. There, it was exciting. The audio is so rich for that film. Did you have to come back in and do uh, looping or or just kind of? Oh, my father was really pissed off. My father is a Shakespearean actor. Well, we're all we're all classical actors, and they they dubbed it, and he didn't like that at all. I mean, he was very upset about that. And my brother and the, you know, and, and they they were he really didn't give us any. We didn't have any rehearsals or anything. He just said, "Okay, we're going to shoot it." We went in. He didn't run through it or anything. That scene is pretty intense, the, especially. Yeah, the technical dialogue that you guys have to kind of spew out. Yeah, well, I I only had one line, but they they didn't even hear it. I was sort of lost in the I was lost in the middle of the in the ladder up in the uh, middle of the thing. So I I'm just sort of very you have to look very quick to see me. But my brother had a lot of lines, and my father had had a lot of lines, and uh, he got a lot of footage. But but they got they got him in. I imagine Michael Ritchie was a little bit of a different director compared to George Lucas. Oh, Ritchie was great, great to work with. That was one of the most fun things I had with that, in that film. We got to meet Melvin Douglas and blah, blah, blah. So that's another one where we had, you know, everybody was in it. And it was sort of a big party for all of the actors in the, in the Bay Area. And I had a speaking part in that one. We also did Petulia. All three of us worked at Petulia. Right, yeah, Richard Lester, right? Yeah, yeah, and he was real interesting work, but they didn't. They got very. The unions got very upset with him because he kept wanting to look in the camera. The director was supposed to handle the camera, and then he would do things out of the blue. I mean, he took me out there and put me up on the in the ferry. We were all on the ferry boat in the middle of the thing, and he gave me a camera. And he said, "Okay, at some point, I want you to open the back of the camera and let all the film, let the film just start pull it out and let it start flying around." And he had isolated camera on him, but still stays in there. He was he was improvising a lot. He was being improvised. And then my cousin is Peter Alban was the uh, was the bass guitar player for Big Brother and the Holding Company in Dallas Stomp. And they were all in so, so it was a big you know, we were a lot of family working on those stuff. 
was one of the most interesting things about working in fifties and sixties in the movie industry there because we we worked on everything and we uh, worked with a lot of different directors and a lot of well-known directors and uh, with a lot of major major film stars. We did, did three Jack Lemon movies. Worked in uh, worked with with uh, Blake Edwards on on Days of Wine and Roses. And my father and brother, we were all in that one. And then we also did Bullet. My father had uh, used all his marrying. They had a, they used, in Bullet, they had a, uh, there was a makeup store down on Powell. And uh, they had all his marionettes hanging in the windows of that, for that one scene when, when uh, McQueen was on, the, was on the phone. And they also did the, that, uh, that Preminger did that. That movie with John Wayne and Tom Tyrone and Paul Apprentice in World War II, you thing. Uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Paul Apprentice was in it, and Pat, Patricia Neal was in it, yeah. But it was, uh, was it In Harm's Way? Yeah, In Harm's Way, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my father did one movie called Mr. Billion, Jackie Gleason was in it, and uh, that, uh, the Italian. Uh, Western actor who's been doing who's Italian Hill name was Hill was oh Terrence Hill Terrence Hill yeah so Ralph got a lot of work he did tell me a riddle with with uh, with Douglas Noah Douglas and, and uh, Lila Kadrova and he, he he got a lot of stuff he got more than any of us because he was a real interesting character guy and he did he did uh, he did a movie with with Alan Arkin called uh, Freebie and the Bean. And the guy who was playing the heavy in that got mad at my father because he was getting too many laughs. He said, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the guy supposed to get you laughs here. My father was like the hot dog stand-up. He really got mad at him. Arkin was really interesting. I worked on two films. That was the uh, one of the first episodes we ever did of the show. We had uh, Richard Rush on here, and I was just fawning over uh, Freebie and the Bean. I loved it so much. Oh, they they hated him in San Francisco because he went and did this car crash down up up you know where the 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 big mansion, the Spikles Mansion that was used in uh, in By Pal Joey. Well, there's a there's a park right across from that, and they had a car going down the steps from that, and he was. They were not happy with it. No. And my father also was in uh, the first Woody Allen movie, which was when I was in that, my brother and I. Yeah. And uh, he he was the preacher who marries them, marries them in the park. And my father is an old Victorian. Uh, he's not very, uh, you know, he's through the puppeteers, but he was not an ad liver. And so when they called him up and they got him up there and they got, Woody Allen up there with the gown, and my father asked for the lines, and I'll just make it up. And he was very freewheeling, Woody Allen. I also did a, I did a one where he that Bogart, one where the Bogart movie, but then it's also, you know, play it again, Sam, and they had that in this fancy restaurant that overlooked the, in Sausalito, and they came in with all these click lights, and it was a fern bar. Burned all the fern. <laughs> they all they all wilted and they were not happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was 
that was a great time. That was a great time for for, for making films. I have great great memories of that. Last but not least, we have NCH himself, Mr. Sid Haig. We just lost Adam West, and I was curious what your experience was working with him on Batman when you were the Royal Apothecary. We really didn't spend that much time together. You know, we didn't have a lot of scenes together, but when he got through shooting, he went back to his dressing room. I don't think he was feeling well at the time or something, but we really didn't get to, you know, hang out and discuss stuff. So uh, it was very limited experience. Did you get to work with Victor Bono much? Oh, yeah. Victor and I got along really well. As a matter of fact, we did three different projects together. I worked on not only Batman, but Sinbad, which was a, a pilot, and also two guys from Muck. And Victor Bono told me the greatest joke in the world. And the person that told it to him was Maria Callas, okay, the opera singer. So here's the situation. There's a piano bar. The guy's playing a piano in New York and everything's going on. All of a sudden, this guy comes in and he's a, he's a mobster, okay? And he says, uh, pretty soon the bunk be going to be coming in here and he wants to hear Strangers in the Night. And the guy says, I'm sorry, man, but I don't do requests. I told you that he's coming in here in a couple of minutes and he wants to hear strangers in the night or else you're going to be playing with your elbows. He said, well, uh, okay. He says, oh, yeah, and, and, and he wants to hear it in 5-4 time. He says, 5-4 time? You can't do strangers in the night in 5-4 time. He says, yes, you can. It goes like this. Strangers in the fucking night. <laughs> Victor <laughs> Borman's story number one number two when we were working on Sinbad we were the only show on the lot there was nothing else shooting and we had drive-on passes so I drive up to the gate and the guy checks me out and everything I said yeah I have a drive-on pass he said, nobody has a drive-on pass I said well I have a drive-on pass and he said no you don't you just take your car and you park it over there in the parking lot and meanwhile, there's a car in back of me that's honking its horn. I'm going, oh, Jesus. So I go back there, and it was Victor Wano. I said, Victor, we don't have drive-on passes. He said, okay, park your car and then come and get in mine. So he backed up a little bit so I could maneuver. I went and parked the car, got into his car, drove up to the gate. And he said, uh, yes, I'm Victor Bono, and this is Sid Hagen. Uh, we have drive-on passes. He goes, no, you don't. Nobody has drive-on passes on this lot. 
He said, oh, okay. Well, when the King brothers are wondering where we are, you can tell them that they maybe send a driver in a limousine to pick Mr. Haig and I up at my residence. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And we just drove on. We went to his place, had coffee, talked for a while, and a pretty good limo pulls up and, and takes us to the, to the lot. <laughs> so that's the kind of guy he was. And then he says, Sid, do you know anything about, do you know any gems? I said, well, what kind of gem? He goes, uh, rubies. I said, well, yeah, I know a little bit, yeah. He goes, oh, he says, because I just bought some uh, raw. And I said, oh, really? I said, how, how much? He goes, 80 pounds. <laughs> 80 pounds? <laughs> what are you doing? My God. So I don't know what he ever did with them. But yeah, he bought 80 pounds of rubies. You worked with Jack Hill so much over his career and, and your career. Can you tell me, what was it like when you first met him before you even worked on the host? Well, when I went in on the interview for the host, it was the first time that I met him. He was very cordial and everything, and he was, he was kind of an intense guy. You know, uh, he was still a student at UCLA, and he had this idea, and it really worked out well. He was, you know, very, very open to ideas and and things that, you know, we could do to make the part and the, the whole thing more interesting. And we just got along so well, and that's, I guess, why he just kept, hiring me and hiring me and hiring me. It was really good. And the thing that's uh, interesting about the host is that actually the last part of Apocalypse Now is the storyline of the host. Francis Ford Coppola was a student at UCLA at the same time Jack was. And I'm not saying it's plagiarism. It's just all of a sudden he said, oh, you know what? This would really be cool if we worked it like this. And uh, and so he did. And Jack didn't feel bad about it. There, there were no hard feelings or anything like that. It was just one of those things that turned out to be really cool. You know, when when Martin Sheen shows up and does the whole thing with uh, uh, Brando. And uh, uh, the thing that's interesting about the host was Quentin Tarantino found it somehow in an incomplete form and said, we got to release this. And the sound was all screwed up and everything. And so 30 years later, I had to record dialogue and make it sound like I was 30 years younger <laughs> than I actually was. Okay. And uh, he got Miramax to uh, release it as a companion disc to Swiss Blade Sisters. You know, I just rewatched Pit Stop recently. <laughs> and that movie just gets better and better every time I see it. I love that film. I do too. <laughs> I, I had such a good time on that film. We were really, uh, the cast was really tight. Nobody was, you know, there were no dramas or anything else. And it was basically one of Ellen McRae at the time. We know her now as Ellen Burstyn, but it was one of her first films. I'm sure they didn't let you get in harm's way, but I imagine you spent a lot of time at the racetrack. Oh, I spent a whole lot of time at the racetrack. I uh, I drove four laps uh, at the time, and there was an old-time IndyCar driver that was a photographer, still photographer, that just kind of hung out at the racetrack and took shots of people and stuff. And uh, he said, uh, son, you know how to how to play the harp? I said, uh, no. He said, then I suggest you stay away from that wall. <laughs> 
Okay, gee, thanks for the encouragement. Okay. I mean, the principal photography on that film, I think, was shot for like $35,000. It looks so good. The cinematography is wonderful in that. Yeah. This is the way you do a film for $35,000. We went to Ascot Park, and I say we, I'm talking about the company. Went to Ascot Park and talked to the guy that owned it and offered him the part of the announcer. Well, he announced the races every Sunday anyway. So, yeah, sure. So we got the space. We got the location for free. Then there's a bar right across the street from there where everybody goes after the races. We went to the owner of the bar and made him bartender. We got that for free. Uh, we went to the clinic where they take the drivers when they get busted up and gave the owner of the clinic the part of the doctor. The clinic was free. Uh, we went to George Barris, pitched the whole thing to him, and so we got George Barris's custom car shop free. As a matter of fact, in that in that scene where I'm grinding away on on a, a, a piece of the car, that was the chipmunk's car before it got completely built. See all these little things that nobody ever knows <laughs> or even cares about. <laughs> How was your experience working on Star Trek? That was very cool. First of all, I was doing an episode of Men from Uncle, and the two studios, MGM and Paramount, worked it out so that I would be through shooting uh, Men from Uncle by lunch and then start shooting uh, Star Trek right after lunch. And that's like 20 miles away. In the car, whoop, <laughs> and over to Paramount. Rushed in, and I said, your wardrobe's in that room, in that uh, little dressing room over there, going, you know, get into wardrobe, and that will do makeup. So I went in, and I kind of put on these tights, and they were tight, and I just, I, could, I, I couldn't get into them. And I went back out, and I said, I can't, uh, I can't get into these things. And the wardrobe mistress said, oh, my God, those are Michelle and Cole's pants. So I could... <laughs> I could say that I tried to get into her pants. All right. Didn't work. Uh, <laughs> but all the stars of, of that series were trying to quit smoking all at the same time. And so there was a lot of gum chewing and candy eating and all of that stuff. And Joe Pevney, the director of that episode, was a nervous little guy. And he'd holler action. And then a few seconds later, he'd holler cut. Get rid of the damn gum, Jesus Christ. And so everybody throws away the gum. We go on and do the same. And this happened scene after scene after scene. And then one day we were out on the back lot and we were working with um, atmosphere. There had to have been like 80 of them. At the lunch, <laughs> Bill Shatner went around and gave everybody in the cast, the crew, and all the extras a piece of double bubble. And with the instructions that went that the first shot after lunch, when the director hollers action, everybody turn and blow a bubble into the camera. I thought the guy was going to have a coronary, but that's the kind of guy Bill Shatner is. He's a real prankster. What is your memory of working on Point Blank? Uh, foggy. Uh, <laughs> my son was born on my first day of shooting on Point Blank. You know, I didn't have a huge part uh, on the thing. I was basically the uh, number one lobby guard kind of guy. But it was cool hanging out with, you know, everyone. And uh, uh, just the personalities involved. 
Okay. It was, it was amazing. Lee Marvin was a great guy. Um, Angie Dickinson was so smart and so, pardon the expression, ballsy. Okay. There was a scene where they were in bed and she asked the still photographer to please not shoot anything from the foot of the bed because, uh, you know, what you're going to be looking at, right? So they do the scene. After it was over, the guy was reloading his camera and, uh, she went over to him and said, uh, is this the role of film that you just took on that, on that scene we just did? He goes, yeah. She just gently grabbed a hold of the roll and started pulling the film out. <laughs> she didn't make any big noise. She didn't say, I want this guy fired. She did nothing else. She was just totally serious and but very cool. And uh, I worked again with her on Police Woman. But uh, Lee Marvin uh, was great to work with, and it was somebody's brilliant idea to have the rap party at the strip club across the street from the, uh, I mean, the topless club across the street from the studio. Bad idea. Lee Marvin got me in three fights that night. He was one of those instigator guys. You know, like, did you hear what that guy just said about you? <laughs> and then, and then the fight was on. And, but we we had a great we had a great time, and uh, towards the end of the evening, which came like around two o'clock in the morning, he said, "Okay, Sid, we're drunk." I said, "How do you know that?" He said, "Well, about an hour ago, we switched from vodka to gin." Oh Jesus! Okay, I don't remember getting home. I, all I know is that the next day, every time I blinked, it sounded like symbols going off. Yes, please, people, do not drink and drive or walk or crawl or do anything. What was it like working on Get Smart? There were so many talented people involved in that show. Oh, man, that was great. That was great. Uh, Don Adams could not understand why I was being typecast as a heavy. He said, you're, not, you're not heavy. You're a comedian. Well, uh, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do what I got to do. They hired me three times on that show. I just had such a great time working with him. And then, the, and this is the kind of guy he was. He was so loyal to his crew and he loved his crew so much that he wanted to keep them intact. So when the show went on hiatus, he started a commercial production company, just shooting commercials, just so he could keep his crew together. Okay. And I shot one of those commercials. We did a big elaborate Monte Carlo ballroom gambling thing, and I was the coupier, and we were playing skittle ball. Okay, stupid, <laughs> but that commercial ran from October to December, three years in a row. So it uh, it was a it was a fat payday for me. Can you tell me what was your experience working like on CC and Company? That was also great. You know, I try to look at the best in people. Sometimes I'll go in with a preconceived idea. Okay. At this point in time was when like all athletes that had, you know, given up their careers because they were all torn up and everything decided to become movie stars. So that really hit that whole idea just really hit me hard. You know, I trained all my life to be an actor to do what it is that I do. And then some guy who was a star baseball player or whatever just walks on and gets paid a million bucks to stand there and spit out some of the simplest dialogue possible and, and 
somehow really doesn't, you know, make it come off. So I was really, unfortunately, and this is bad on my part, I was really prepared not to like Joe Namath. But he was such a great guy. We we would hang out together. He found out that I was Armenian. He said, he said I I got to have some Armenian food. We got to find an Armenian restaurant in Phoenix. Guess what? There are none. I mean, in Tucson, not Phoenix, Tucson. Uh, I said, well, yes, we do, because my cousin lives here, and we will go and 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 cook the meal at his house. And he said, fantastic. And there happened to be a guy standing there listening to us, and he said, uh, I'm Syrian, and we're the, you know, we cook the same kind of food, and I'd be happy to have you guys come over to dinner. Yeah, sure. Okay. So we got invited to these people's house and didn't know them from Adam, but they were nice and generous and everything was cool. At one point in the filming, when Greg Malaby and I pull over Anne Margaret's limo and start to get a little frisky with her, and Namath is looking under the hood to see if he can get the car going and everything. And, you know, he was kind of the gentleman of the group, if you will. His reactions just weren't strong enough in terms of disliking what it was that Greg and I were doing. And the director said, just call her the C word. And I said, no, I won't. I won't do that. He said, why? I said, well, because do you think if I decided to become a professional football player out of the blue, that he, that he would just step up and give me all the help in the world or anyone else that's in the, you know, uh, in athletics? So no, they wouldn't. Okay. Now he's on my field. Now he's got to learn. So he's got to learn how to do his stuff. And I refused to call her that. Okay. Cause it's just not right. All of a sudden this little hand comes through the window of the car and grabs my shoulder. And I looked up and it was Anne Margaret. She heard the whole conversation and she was just so appreciative of the fact that I recognized that we became friendly and invited to their house several times and just had a great time together. But Joe turned out to be a great guy and, and Margaret was fantastic. The whole the whole thing was great. That's another one where it's just an amazing cast. I mean, I love William Smith and uh, Bruce Glover is always so fun to watch. Yeah. yeah, Bruce Glover ran into a cow. You remember partway through the film, he shows up with a, a cast on his arm. Well, that's because he ran into a cow with his, his motorcycle. Just a little side. Was the cow okay? I was fine. The cow looked at him like, what? <laughs> you were on Mission Impossible a lot. I mean, you were on, what, nine episodes of that? Yes. I think I've done more Mission Impossibles than anybody else other than the regulars on the show. How did you get cast in THX 1138? Um, they called my agent and said, is he available? And they said, yes. And boom, that was it. But that was a very weird experience because, you know, that scene in Limbo, where we all, they hired a rehearsal hall and all of the people involved in that sneezy, uh, except for Duvall and, and a couple of other people were sent to this rehearsal hall to, uh, you know, rehearse this scene, which was partially written, but kind of loosely. And, uh, Lucas would show up in the morning and say, okay, I want you guys to work on something like this. And he would explain whatever. And then he'd come back in the afternoon and say, okay, show me what you got. And we would do it. 
And you go, okay, and you tweak it a little bit here and tweak it a little bit there. And then the next day we do the same thing all over again. And so we did that for a week. And then we shot it for a week. And it was it was really weird. We had five cameras on that on that that section of the film uh, that was in limbo there. Uh, we had five cameras, everything from a thousand millimeter lens to a nine millimeter lens, and everybody had their own wireless mic that was uh, actually attached to their own personal uh, recorder, so that they could control everything because. They would start in uh, a type two shot of two people talking, and then they'd move out of the way, and then there, in back of them there would be four people doing something else. So the, the, it was constant movement throughout the whole that whole scene. Actually, that scene was twenty seven minutes long, but it was cut down to like seven minutes because it was just too hard to edit together. It was pretty wild. I've heard theories that um, a lot of the guys there, so like PTO would be considered Play-Doh, NCH, your character would be a Nietzsche. It, was there any water to that at all, or is that just uh, people reading too much into I it? I think there's people reading too much into it. I never, I'm, this is the first time I've ever heard of that. Maybe I was absent that day. <laughs> that set was just amazing. Did you guys, how was that being in that huge or was it even that huge of a white room it was about half the size of a football field and the radius from the wall to the floor was four feet the entire ceiling was 300 watt photo floods about a half an inch apart so if you look at the film there's no shadows because light is bouncing off of white and bouncing back up and so there's no shadows anywhere and uh, at one point uh, Lucas wanted me to uh, uh, do some kind of futuristic calisthenics or whatever. And I went to like balance on one leg and I couldn't. I, I had because I had no point of focus. Everything was just, everything was white. Yeah, it was really strange. And then at one point, he became fascinated with what a great job the, uh, uh, the set people did on those little bunks that we, uh, we had because there were drawers here and drawers there and all kinds of stuff. And he opened this thing up and it was, a, it was actually like a chemical toilet. Okay. And he looks at me of all people, I guess he figured I was the craziest one in the bunch. He said, yeah, I said, at some point find a, a, a way to uh, use the toilet. And I'm like, yeah, I'll get right on that. I think I'm going to drop a deuce here on camera. No, thanks. Uh, so, so <laughs> I just somehow managed to not be able to do that. I know this was one of the first times that he actually worked with actors. What was he like as a director? He was very cool. I mean, he was very creative. And the thing is, he was, I mean, he was an editor before. As a matter of fact, he was uh, Francis Ford Coppola's editor on uh, Finian's Rainbow. And uh, so he kind of, you know, as an editor, you kind of get the idea of what you need to do as a director, you know, and he picked that up really quickly. You know, he was, he was very, he was very clear. There was nothing. I was never even a mystery about what it was that he wanted. So uh, 
That was very cool. Probably didn't open any doors for you since it was such a, a flop after it came out. It, it didn't open any doors for me. <laughs> no. But it sure did for uh, the ball. Yeah, nothing really came of it and, and um, just came and went. I don't, I don't even think it made its money back. But hey, what a, you know, what an experience. I mean, to be in on opening days of George Lucas's career, that's cool. I was curious, you worked on so many amazing television shows, especially in the 1970s, so many favorites of mine, especially like Six Million Dollar Man, Rockford Files. Did you have a favorite that you worked on? Actually, <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't have any favorites, but there was one that was just so cool because it was so loose and uh, it, it was just amazing to work on. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I went in and did an audition. It was for an episode. And so we did the thing and I had a lot of fun. And uh, it aired Christmas, I mean, New Year's Eve. What a fantastic, okay. But somebody must have been watching because a couple of weeks later, they call and ask me if I'd like to do another one. I said, yeah, sure. I had a great time. I was in almost every episode for the whole rest of the season. And the director, Jim Drake, was one of these guys. Particularly if Dabney Coleman and I were in a scene together, he wouldn't come on the speaker and say, stop tape. He'd just let it go and see what we would do. And we would come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. And they would keep it in. At one point, uh, I'm working with this guy, and I think his name is David Wolf. Uh, he was the leader of the glorious Guardians of Good, the GGG, and I was his second in command. <laughs> and there was a whole crazy storyline about that. You know, he sent me out to buy uniforms for the GGG, and everybody in Mary's family and friends were all recruited into the GGG somehow. So I went and bought uniforms, and they were moo-moos. And, <laughs> and I said, what the hell is it? I said, that's the only thing I could find. It was one size fits all, okay? He and I were doing this scene, and he said, when we take over the White House, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get me a copy of Hustler magazine and spend all day in the hot tub. He said, is that all you want out of life? And the scene was supposed to end with me, a quizzical look on my face, like, is there anything more? But he never said stop tape. So I said, well, I would like to have a baby gorilla. Still no stop tape. I said, uh, with a little gold chain, nothing. I said, I'd call him Max and teach him how to make my ties. And finally, the director comes on laughing like, stop tape, stop tape. It's over. I did it. So, and they kept it in. It was a part of the episode. But then... A little while later, they killed me off, and they're b both of us. And they said, okay, guys, it's been a pleasure working with you. It's so much fun. Blah, blah, blah. I said, it's not over. Said, what do you mean? It's not over. We just blew you up. And I said, yeah, but it's not over. He said, well, what more is there to do? I said, we have to come back as our wives to claim the body. And I went, what? <laughs> we have to come back as our wives to claim the body. So <laughs> the producer looked at the wardrobe mistress and said, uh, call Western Costume, get two dresses over here tomorrow morning. And we shot the scene of us claiming the bodies. And they said, well, that's it. And I said, well, no, actually it's not. 
what now? And so I, I want to direct this damn thing. And then, uh, what? And I said, I want to direct. And so they went to Jim and they said, do you mind apprenticing Sid? And he said, no, not at all. He's a very open, a very giving guy, you know. And so I would get the script the night, uh, the day, at the end of the day for the next day's shoot. And I'd go home and I'd block scenes out and figure out stick to do and whatever. And I'd take it in the morning and he'd look at it. He would accept a lot of stuff and then he would change a few things. And then I shot all the scenes with ones and twos, you know, one, one person, two person, three person. And then he would do all the big stuff because they were going to close the show. So that was, you know, that was just a really great experience for me. You had a, a very regular gig on, um, was it Jason of Star Command? You told me a story years ago. I'm trying to remember what it was about. You scared the bejesus out of a kid. Oh, yeah. That's how we got the show canceled. We were the number one. We were the number one show on the air in that time slot. We never got below a 47 share. Okay. That's unheard of. Uh, it was the most expensive Saturday morning television show uh, on the air. And uh, we were just firing them off then. And um, as a reward to the director of children's programming, they gave him a nighttime programming job. And they brought this woman in to do children's program to replace him. And she was at the studio one day with her little boogery kid. And um, they were walking down the hall one way, and I was walking down another hall, another direction. And we met at the intersection, and the kid ran into my knee and started crying. And she said, that's it. This show is absolutely uh, not for children. And so it was canceled. Number one show on the air. Yeah. Yeah, you've played so many scary and intimidating characters. Uh, do people give you second glances on the street, like you might turn into Captain Spaulding all of a sudden? Some people are a little cautious. Yeah, they stand back a little bit. Some people embrace it and they're, oh my God, just come up and give me a hug. Okay, it's it's crazy. It's it's really wild. I love it. All right, we're back and we're talking about THX 1138. And once again, I did want to pimp the Sugar Hill episode where you get to hear from Don Pedro Colley. And, you know, we talked about uh, the movie. We didn't really talk about Electronic Labyrinth 4EB, which is, it's, it's so strange to me because here I was talking about how THX 1138, the first act to me is very solid and it's kind of like a story unto itself and you would almost think that that is the short that Lucas had done and then he just like added two more acts to it but if anything the short is almost the third act of THX 1138 because it's it's that chase scene that we get for however long what 20 minutes or something and it's a great student film and it really shows the seeds of THX 1138 and even has it kind of in the title and everything 
you can see where that was the rough sketch. And to me, the, the movie really kind of took it to that next level and really brought a lot of weight to it. Yeah, I don't I honestly don't really like the short very much because there's no sort of context to it. The fact that it is what ends up being the third act in the movie is what makes the feature work so well is that and the the feature is despite the uh, sort of abstract elements, it's a pretty traditionally structured movie, the three act structure. And so all the build up to the chase is kind of what makes the chase exciting. Uh, so in the short, it's just the guy, it just kind of, for me, kind of comes across as a guy running around hallways with <laughs> Sharpie numbers written on his forehead and the music too, in the shorts, which feels completely out of place. This, this very Oregon heavy and the opening credits, it's, uh, it's very seventies. Yeah. I really like the Lalo Schifrin score on, on the feature film. And I like that it's, I mean, it's kind of all over the place, but the way that he uses the, uh, the flute and the strings, I mean, there's, it fits well with it to me. And it, yeah, it isn't as hitting me over the head as the score for the short, but then at the same time, I'm sure that he, he couldn't afford an orchestra for that. Sure. Yeah. A lot of the, the music and the feature feels very, a lot of it feels like a horror movie score, which I guess in a way the movie is kind of a horror movie, but yeah, the, especially I'm thinking of the part when the, the three robot cops are surrounding him and sort of prodding him with those, those black poles. It's, it, yeah, it feels more, uh, like a traditional horror score than, than something more science fiction. Yeah, there are times where it almost reminds me of Jerry Goldsmith's score from Planet of the Apes, where it kind of has that atonal uh, quality to it, but not necessarily as as uh, robust as uh, Goldsmith's score. Goldsmith's score, by the way, uh, I would recommend that nobody ever drive while listening to the Planet of the Apes score, because I almost drove my car into a wall once, just like, oh my god, it was too intense. You know, just like <laughs> I thought apes were chasing me. And then there's the director's cut version, which I have to say I'm not as familiar with as I am the original. The original is the one that I watched over the years. And then I kind of eased myself into the director's cut by going to what they call the hybrid cut, which is a weird cut. I would have thought that the hybrid cut would have chopped out more stuff and would have used the original a little bit more, but really it's kind of like, here's the director's cut plus a little bit on top of that. Um, at least that was my impression. I don't know what you guys thought of that. Uh, well, I haven't seen the hybrid cut. I'm mostly familiar with the director's cut, uh, just because I could not find the original version in any of the video stores growing up. But I mean, it was very obvious in watching it what was the new additions as far as the effects go i i don't know about re-editing of scenes like i think that's a little more subtle but the uh yeah it's it's i mean it's the same crap as the star wars movies as far as the special editions go where it's either something that's so obviously a new edition and sticks out like a sore thumb or it's something so minuscule that you're wondering why even bothered yeah the stuff that really sticks out for me when I finally watched the director's cut was that, uh, the scene of creating, uh, the robot cop that seemed like it was really different. And especially to see the way that the shots became a lot larger, if that makes sense. Like it feels like we went from almost a two shot to an establishing shot. Insofar as I'm seeing a lot more now of this factory than I ever did before. And I kind of, 
I like the way that THX is a cramped movie and that you can tell that they were shooting it in these locations that weren't necessarily, you know, some of them were kind of practical locations. You know, he actually shot this at like a nuclear power plant and Bell Telephone and, and these kind of things. So like using that equipment and kind of recontextualizing it, I thought was really smart. And then with this, it just feels like he kind of, like, let's make this a bigger world. And there's one shot that really stuck out for me where it's just like an establishing or not even an establishing shot. It's just a, a shot of the hallways or whatever. And you see people walking and in the background, it feels like this city is immense and it just goes on forever. And you see all these lights and all these things. It's almost like croissants. And it's like, what the fuck? You know, th- this, this society feels like it's so oppressive and so underground and looking at this digital landscape, I was like, wow, this looks kind of pretty, and maybe it would be nice to live here. And I don't want that feeling when I'm watching THX. Definitely did a disservice to the overall feel of it, I think. And that was a, a completely um, – the shot that you're talking about is the one with the elevator. That was made up, like just created for the director's cut. His special editions – and I'll include THX in that. There's some stuff I like, and there's some stuff that's completely why, why, why bother? Why did you put moth ears and dragonfly wings on that lizard inside the computer? Is this a fantasy world? Is it another planet now? It, it worked a lot better when it was just a know nothing creature inside a machine, which was way more symbolic than the avatar looking thing that it got turned into. There's two scenes that I that I actually really liked the changes of. I'm blanking on one of them, <laughs> but I know there was two. The one, one that I really did like was uh, the change during the mind lock when he's putting the, the, the nuclear material inside of, of the robot instead of just, you know, an uh, uh, inanimate carbon rod. It looked a lot more dangerous, so it added a lot more attention to the bureaucratic argument i thought but then it kind of gets ruined by expanding out the the work area with the large windows that are very clean for a place that i wouldn't expect to have clean windows and and, and the cramped feeling is just removed it's so it's almost like george lucas doesn't understand his own movies yeah the, <laughs> the other the other added scene or 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 expanded set that I that I that I liked, um, but I don't understand why it's there. Is when they go through the door, the three of them go through the door, and and it's just the the crush of humanity, um, and it's it's expanded out to look like it goes on forever. Um, it it works really well as opposed to the to the original cut because it's it's. It looks way more impossible to navigate than than how it originally did, um, but that and the scene with the elevator and all of the 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 widened and expanded shots to show people walking around and 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 trams and all kinds of roads. What are those people doing? Why are they there? Why where, where why are they doing what they're doing? And it, it, it <laughs> the last straw for me, even though I love the car, it's it's one of my favorite movie cars. It just looks so raw and powerful 
um, especially when he can't control it and he's just making a smoke screen in the tunnel. The weaving in and out of traffic, like where are these people going? It totally takes away, I don't want to say ruins, but it makes me think about aspects of the film that it that I shouldn't be thinking about. Like, are are there people that aren't required to take drugs? Do they get vacations? Who are all these people and where are they going? I, I like the original Chase more when it was just that car and two motorcycles and the roads were empty because everybody's doped up and going to work. Yeah, the one that really gets me is the uh, the scene with Donald Pleasance when he's uh, contemplating escaping. And then in the original cut, he sees a rat on the ground. And that's sort of what, like, this is a foreign, weird thing to him. So that's when he kind of jumps back on the uh, <laughs> on the train and goes back into town. And then in the, the director's cut, they changed it to some sort of, like, CG alien scorpion thing. Yeah. And it's like the, the, the relatability of just, like, we know what a rat is. And so it's it's just a simple little thing, and that kind of changes this whole mindset. So replacing it with this thing that to us is very like weird and foreign with this little scorpion monster just completely uh, undermines the entire point of that scene. Yeah, and then you end up questioning. Uh, we're worried about the humanity of these characters, but are they even human? Where the hell is this planet? It takes a lot most times to uh, take me out of a movie. But yeah, the monkey lizards at the end that attacked him, that really poorly rendered scorpion thing. Well, the uh, the shell dwellers, they also don't make any sense because we've already been introduced to a shell dweller in, in prison. Yeah. We see the it's a little person. And then at the end, you know, oh, what are these monkey creatures like? Are these yeah. supposed to be the same thing? And it's like, well, if you're going to replace them, why didn't you replace the uh the shell dweller in the prison and make that a monkey creature. It, it, it's so inconsistent, which again goes along with the, uh, the special editions of the star Wars movies where it yeah. just seems almost arbitrary, like just an idea he had on a whim, like, Oh, we'll make the, uh, the shell dwellers, little monkey people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there are in the, in the original trilogy, there are some changes that I like, but there's some stuff that's just like, why on the Blu-ray release are you going to put an extra rock in front of R2? because <laughs> you're going to look at that and go things got two legs three sometimes it wobbles back and forth how did it get in there well everybody hates the changes to the special editions and obviously those are kind of more popular and beloved movies than thx is but i would say the changes in thx are more uh of a detriment to the movie than mm-hmm. the ones in the, the star wars trilogy because I mean, so much of THX is is claustrophobic. The cinematography, like all the so many close ups, and it's very. It just feels like this this closed in environment. So when you're cutting from that to this like wide cartoon, you know, establishing shot of the city, it, it just it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, it should be more like um like the Japanese coffin hotels, and and less like Cloud City. Okay, I appreciate that you're going through and cleaning up the look of this movie, but just clean it up and release that. And then if you want to do a director's cut too, go ahead and do that. But please, you know, right now, I think the best version of THX 1138 that's out there is off of a laser disc and people have, you know, cleaned that up as best as they can, but you know, it's not 
as clean as some versions of Star Wars that we've seen. Nobody's gone back and, and taken a, as far as I know, taken a, you know, 35 millimeter print and rescanned it and cleaned it up and all that kind of stuff, you know, because it, because it isn't Star Wars. People aren't that obsessed with it. But it's like, please, just, just clean up the original, give me that. And then if you want to go through and do weird shit like changing all the graphics to green instead of yellow, it's like, what? <laughs> Is that is that so it matches like the Lucas brand or something now? I mean that's just those are weird arbitrary changes. Let's, yeah. Lucas loves to make those too. Just so in, inconsequential, but it's like he's he's just kind of watching the movie in real time and he sees something. He's like, Oh, let's just change the color of that. Oh I don't like those numbers that are on that door. Let's just change it to a number three. It's like why? What what purpose does that serve? There's also the part when uh, uh, THX is he's filling out like a little punch card thing that's sort of uh, uh, to to kind of call out uh, Donald Pleasance's character. And he's filling that out. And then the uh, director's cut, they added like a CG, some sort of monitor Mm. above the box that he's filling it out on. But then he still has to put it in like a little punch card uh, box, like this, this kind of old school, very, you know, low tech punch card box. Where it's like, what, what is the purpose of this monitor above it? This high-tech monitor. And then to kind of have to hit us over the head by showing an on-screen thing that says, violation program shifting. And I was just like, I got it. I got that he was reporting him. But okay. A lot, some of the changes take this this analog future uh, society that they have and, and makes it, makes it a, a, a mix of old-style you know, repurposing machinery to look like it fits in your, in your sci-fi world and, and adds a digital aspect to it. And it kind of, it's kind of jarring. It's kind of jar jarring at times. Those on-screen graphics, there are times where it's like, this was obviously made, you know, looking at the original, you're like, this was obviously made on a screen that has, big chunky pixels is a CRT display and you're shooting it off of that, or it's, it's generating onto something as opposed to a really clean digital title. And it's the, the look of those two things can give you such different feelings. And yeah, I like that the original was very much an analog adventure. And this new one is like kind of digital, kind of not. And I'm just like, Okay, pick one, and to me, I prefer the analog, so I don't know. I'm surprised he didn't go back and like clean up all those things where he was shooting off of television screens, which is a great effect, but you know, now he might be like, oh, no, no, I can make that a lot cleaner. <laughs> oh, no, I love the look of that in older older sci-fi movies. The only time that that analog and digital thing worked for me as a, as a viewer was um, in the Max Headroom series. Because that that's just how it was from the beginning. That always threw me when it was the film versus video look on the old Doctor Who, where it's like, you know, Tom Baker's walking outside and it looks really nice. And you can tell that it was shot on probably like 16. And then it gets back into the TARDIS and it's like, it just looks like garbage. <laughs> it's like, whoa, what just happened? It's like, oh, they switched to video now. Okay, I get it. So, Yep. Dimensional interference field, right? I have to say, if if folks like THX 1138, there's a uh, well. It, it was originally it was a book, became a, I think it's a German television movie. So it's got that kind of 
talk about that that garbage look to it, but I say this affectionately, like a television movie from the early 80s when they're still using tube cameras, and tube cameras give you a lot different look than other you know video cameras at the time. Later on, when when we move from tube to to other technology, it's called We or the German titles Wir, uh, W I R, and it's based on a sci-fi novel. And I'm going to butcher the guy's name, Yevgeny Zamyatin. And this was from talk about. Uh, a precursor. This is from 1921, and the characters' names uh, are going to sound very familiar. Like our main character is D503, and his uh, best friend is R13, and his lover is O90. So we're seeing definitely some precursor to uh, THX 1138 in here, and they live in a very monitored society. Their apartments are glass. There are a lot of overtones when it comes to that. And then as I was reading the novelization of THX 1138, I kept thinking of Brave New World. So I went out and I listened to that and forgot just how depressing Brave New World is. I mean, here I was, I was coming off in 1984 a few months ago, and I'm like, oh yeah, Brave New World, that's a lot happier, I think. No, it's not happier. It's not happy. I mean, it starts a little bit happier. You get to see the hatcheries, and it takes a little while for it to get going. And especially towards the end, it's just, it's so depressing. But that's a really good, um, you know, drugs controlling the society story. So to me, THX is kind of like a marriage of those two, as well as that, you know, that Logan's Run. I know it was a book before it became a movie, but I think it was a book from the late 60s. So it probably came out right around the time that THX was actually being filmed. So uh, also uh, good things to check out when it comes to if you are a uh, hardcore THX 1138 fan. Do you know if Lucas has ever uh, kind of credited uh, either of those as an inspiration for THX? Not that I'm aware of. He's kind of playing in that that sweet spot of uh dystopia so i can see i i don't even know if i would necessarily i I, it's definitely not a tarantino situation where i'm just like oh my god he should have credited this russian sci-fi writer yeah there's some stuff where i'm just like oh okay yeah all right it's kind of similar but at the same time, you know, people, some people would be like, oh, yeah, well, uh, Logan's Run ripped off uh, Brave New World as well. And it's like, well, not really. But I mean, they all play in the same sandbox. The novelization, I do have to say, is kind of interesting because the the, uh, the writer of the novelization, Ben Bova, he had done a ton of novels. This guy uh, knew what he was doing. And he changed it so that there is like a master control unit that is controlling everything in the city so it's funny they kind of have this villain but it really doesn't even play a factor in it and then it gives us a little bit more of law and what happens with her trial and because she just drops out of the movie at one point i actually really like that in the movie the fact that she just she's just not there anymore when they take him away when they zap him (laughs) and put him on the one cop's back and he's still frozen like that i kind of like that but uh yeah she just goes away and also to go back to the script there was one part in the script where it was neat because after thx's trial he's being let out and he doesn't see but L U H is being let in like 
he's going out one door, she's coming in another door, and that's the last time that we see her. Would have been kind of a nice, you know, little visual gag almost, but I kind of like the way that she's just not there anymore. And then when we find out, maybe we kind of find out what's happened to her. It's I, and again, I like that ambiguity to that. The absolute most jarring part of uh, and and out of place aspect of this movie is the Buck Rogers trailer in the beginning. I agree completely. He in the commentary he has some convoluted reason for putting it there, and you know I'm glad that he feels like it fits. But it, I mean, is it supposed to show that uh, this is the uh, this is the other side? Because uh, it, 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 he continually talks about THX being a hero. But I didn't see him as a hero. I just saw him as a survivor. He's so, someone that's just kind of waking up. And it's not even yeah. like, I mean, his sort of his relationship with law is sort of what drives his uh, desire to escape. But it's not even he's been sedated for so long that when he starts to, you know, he stops taking the drugs and he kind of wakes up. It's not even it, it's less uh, like passion and love and more of just kind of. It starts as just sort of a general confusion mm-hmm. and then sort of, oh, I, you know, this desire leave because he's kind of more uh, aware of what's going on around him. But I never got the sense. I never thought of him as a hero. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, th- I thought it was very weird for for Lucas to be describing him as a hero along the same lines as as Buck Rogers. But it makes sense a little bit to me when he when he finally said that he's just an average person with the strength to persevere and keep going. But the only reason he has strength, it's not any sort of personal thing. It's just that he stopped taking the drugs. Yeah. Like like that same thing could have happened to any one of the other people in this, in this civilization, which is what I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. And he's also running away from what he knows isn't right. And he doesn't want to be a part of it. So he's just, he's like, fuck this. I'm out. He's not trying to revolt or change anything. He's just trying to escape. Yeah, and he doesn't even attempt to, you know, rescue anyone. <laughs> He's just kind of like, oh, you guys are done. All right, see ya. It, it's almost like George Lucas doesn't understand his own movie. That's what I say about every George Lucas movie. He, he definitely, I think, has a, a different view than the average person on relationships and love and trust and... Uh, you know he's trying to work it out and good good for him <laughs> i i don't know i don't want to sound like condescending or anything because it, he did he did a lot of amazing things on and off the screen um that that i really appreciate but sometimes you, your idea of how things work isn't really how things work and and I think there are definitely aspects in this film that show that he has a different idea of society or acceptance or friendship than than most other people. The IMDb, which we know is 100% reliable 100% of the time, they have a report that on the original uh, theatrical version that instead of Buck Rogers, it was a segment from the uh, 1936 uh, Things to Come 
I have not been able to substantiate that whatsoever, even going back to the original reviews, going back to some sci-fi books that were put out in the 70s that talk about the film. There's one that actually says that it starts with a Buck Rogers short, So, and that's pre-VHS tapes. So I can't find anything that substantiates the things-to-come uh, connection. But I'm not saying that I'm the definitive source. I'm just saying that... People need to uh, not trust fake news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but things to come would actually make sense. <laughs> yes, yes, it would. Yeah, the Buck Rogers thing is it's it's almost the the absolute worst note to start the movie on. It's mm. such a such a a bleak kind of oppressive feeling movie. You start with that, and it just puts you in the complete wrong mindset. Yeah. Yeah, and especially, I mean, because we get a flash forward within the first few minutes of THX where we see him where he's bloodied and has been beaten by the cops. And it's just like, you know, we'll see that image again later on. And that's one of the first things that we open up the movie with. It's like so different than these rip-roaring days of high adventure. Off we go with Buck Rogers in the 20th century. It's like, mm, okay. It's like it's like starting off your movie with... um you know, Batman 66 footage and then, and then show an enter the void. (laughs) (laughs) What's the connection? I don't know. There's people in both of them, I guess, but it it couldn't, yeah, it couldn't be more, more opposite. And maybe that's the point is, is the disorientation you feel going from, from Buck to, to THX. I don't know. I don't know. It is it, very. He, he. It's still very much set in his experimental um, cinema stage. So there's an abstract quality that pretty much only he knows the meaning of. I would assume he and maybe Walter Murch, but Murch isn't talking. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You want to play against me? You're no chess. You don't know that. <laughs> it's the ultimate game of chance. And the most extreme sport of all. <laughs> Where winning is surviving. And nobody survives forever. I taught you how to use that luck. Now you think you're luckier than me. I discovered and your gift I take away already i think it's time to play that's right we'll be back next week with the discussion of intacto until then i want to thank this week's co-hosts jay and chris chris what is the latest with you sir 
Uh, we are coming up on the 500th episode of Outside the Cinema. As far as I know, we still have absolutely no plan on what we're going to do for that. It'll probably be something last minute and hastily thrown together, <laughs> but still be a, a fun conversation. I'm going to I'm going to plug my my card game, the original movie game. Um, we are still on sale on Amazon. <laughs> And we're looking to go into the second printing, um, hopefully not not long after um, this uh, episode premieres. Very cool. Uh, congrats. I'm glad that it's going well for you. Like any startup or homegrown business, it's it's slow to go, but it's going, which is nice. Um, oh, I got to say that the website is theoriginalmoviegame.com, or you can just look it up on Amazon. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. And how about you, Jay? How are the wedding plans going? Oh God, yeah, that storyline. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 if you're tired of it, just imagine how we feel. <laughs> you know, I, I can't wait to figure out some lame way to write ourselves out of this horrible storyline. I mean, craft a satisfying conclusion to this fantastic chapter of the Half in the Bag saga. Maybe you need Max Landis to reboot it. <laughs> he's what he's welcome anytime. Sorry, I just saw that video on how he's going to reboot the Star Wars story or how he would do it. It definitely seemed like in that in that video he was not taking the question seriously. No, no. So I, I couldn't even I couldn't even get angry, <laughs> which I know is the response you wanted from me. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. He's uh, yeah, he's a character. And no, I did like his appearance on uh, Half in the Bag, and uh, you had him on the. Uh, what was it? The Wheel of Misfortune? Or no? He was, uh, best of the Worst. He was on Best of the Worst. Thank you. One day he may come back. We'll see. He's a busy guy now, but we're we're hoping to get him back. So where are the adventures of Half in the Bag going other than uh, to to the wedding chapel? I, I don't know. I guess we'll see. We'll see what other stupid crap we can come up with next time. Well, I have to say, and I was saying this a little bit off air, but uh, your guys' review of, um, it was a, a double review of uh, Baby Driver and uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, I really recommend. It was a lot of fun to see that. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.